This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not I have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, 
you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 551 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Mike and Anne Galliano. Now, Mike and Anne have a very unique perspective when it comes to firefighter marriages. As you will hear, they're a very powerful story from when they first met, Mike's journey into the fire service, and then the changes in dynamic they saw in their own relationship, in their friend's relationship, and then how they ultimately began to bring some of the solutions to our community. So we discuss a host of topics from air consumption all the way through to finding that rock star crew and everything in between. Before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 550 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Mike and Anne Galliano. Enjoy. Anna and Mike, I want to start by saying thank you so much. We have uh, certainly been back and forth for, oh God, it's got to be over a year, a couple of years maybe. Um, but I'm so glad that we're finally sitting down to do this conversation. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thank you. It's yeah. our pleasure. Yeah, when you're listening, man, when you get a chance to go on the premiere podcast in the fire service world, that's a good day. It's an honor. <laughs> well, I hope you get that one day, but for right now, you can come on mine. <laughs> <laughs> So, well, I want to start with the very first question. Where on planet Earth are we finding you today? We are about 60 miles north of Seattle, Washington. Beautiful. Just out, yep, just outside the city. We're just outside the war zone, brother. Yeah. So all, the, all the stuff that you hear about, all the craziness and nuttiness doesn't really touch our shore. Well, good. I'm glad to hear it. I think there's, there's sadly a lot of a lot of a very small amount of crazy people are getting 99% of the media attention, which is very, very sad. So I would love to kind of pull you guys both through your kind of chronological path and then when you met, met and then we'll kind of delve into some of the topics that you guys talk about. So we'll start with you, Anne. Where, uh, sorry, yeah, where were you born? And then tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Uh, I was born in the Seattle area, so I am a native. Um I grew up in a family of four, mom, dad, and one older brother, and my dad was in real estate. Um, he was actually a retired spy. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. He, uh, he monitored um, communist activity in East Berlin right after World War II, retired spy. And he actually had a little um, interesting damage from that experience, almost dying several times. So that kind of opened the door a little bit for 
PTSD for me way back when. Having to send people to their deaths. Yeah, he uh, he had to recruit spies, and every single one that he recruited was captured and killed. And so he was responsible for their deaths. He also worked to um, debunk the Ku Klux Klan, at which was interesting when he came back to the state. So he has an interesting interesting life. Um, it was Army intelligence before the CIA, but he was in the precursor to the CIA. Mom was a stay-at-home mom. Um, parents divorced when I was 13, and that had a huge impact on me. So I've been always very aware of how important marriage is for the kids because I saw what had happened to our very happy home. Um, big impact on both my brother and I, divorce was. And that was back in the day when none of my friends' parents were divorced. So we were the only ones. Um, went to college, met Mike in college, and he's been my soulmate and best friend pretty much since the very first day we met, we have been together, um, got married a year later, had two boys and, um, we've had a really good life in the fire department, military, um, brief stint with police. So we've been in the first responder world from the get go, but, um, that's kind of my basic story one older brother and um happy to be married to a wonderful firefighter beautiful well i want to go all the way back to your dad for a second so it's interesting i had a a guest on mark polymeros who was uh cia case manager if i've got that term right um but he talked about one of the stories of guilt where he basically got someone to work under uh, for them undercover um technically a spy and they were caught and they did lose their life and the guilt that he carried with that. And then I had a guy called Ron Stallworth, who was the black Klansman, the, the uh, Colorado policeman who was African American that actually infiltrated the Klan. So two very kind of interesting parallel stories there. What manifested from such an incredible career? What did you see now with this kind of mental health lens that you guys have on, on your dad? On my dad. Um, my dad was very emotionally detached. Um, he put on a very cool and reserved exterior, um, which I think eventually drove my mom away, that he was just very difficult to communicate. He was very tender and good with me, um, but he was not with my mom or my brother. He was a very heavy drinker, um, drank a lot, but he was a very intelligent and reserved gentleman, but he was a highly functioning drunk. <laughs> to be honest, and very emotionally detached and um, reclusive. Uh, Later in life became what I would call agoraphobic, Um, very uncomfortable around crowds, um, people, and preferred to be hunting and fishing uh, very much alone. And uh, But that I think that's what, because he said as a kid, he was a very happy, lucky kid. And then to become this very stoic, detached and he used to have violent nightmares my mom said she'd wake up and he'd have her like in a deadlock you know arm around her neck and grabbed her by the hair and so he was kind of frightening to sleep with (laughs) you know very um but you would never really he wasn't a violent man but he would have violent nightmares that terrified her so that's some of the interesting things about his his past and and being a spy was was tough yeah. Well, you hear that, I think, a lot from the World War II generation as well. I mean, they did such incredible things, but there was a lot of compartmentalization. And I hear a lot of the people that have been on that generation was their grandfather, some cases their father, 
and alcoholism absolutely seems to be a common denominator. And, and, you know, there are a lot of very highly functioning people that came out of the war and did amazing things. But if you're not able to process what you did, whether it's a firefighter or, you know, a spy, and then you, and you just can't talk to anyone when you come back, then, yeah, that can become very corrosive to the soul. Yeah, I think so. I think it did. Yeah. Right. Well, you talked about the parents' divorce. As far as career aspirations, though, what, what was your career path from high school onwards? I was a very motivated student. Um, I got into a pretty good school on a on a scholarship. Um, I was heading towards pre-law or, or writing. I wanted to be a writer. Um, so I've kind of gotten to do that. I've, I've been a writer. I've had a writing background. Um, but for the most part, once we got married and had kids right away, I mostly just stayed home and worked from home and, and raised my little boys. So that was actually my top priority was raising those little boys and being around for them and then just working from the home writing and and writing columns and things like that. So uh, started out kind of wanting to be a lawyer or a writer and ended up being a little bit of a writing mom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so those are my aspirations. And my, to be honest, very passionate about marriage because I saw the impact it had on me as a kid and Really, my marriage is my number one priority and, and having a happy home and a, a solid marriage. That was actually my number one goal in life um, was to make sure that we had a solid, happy home life all the way around. So that's I've been fortunate to have achieved that so far. <laughs> so far, we're still good. <laughs> Tomorrow, another Tomorrow's another day. <laughs> this is only this is going to go out in a couple of weeks, so I might have to edit it. Then. Okay. <laughs> um, I saw a similar thing in my family. A lot of it was behind the curtain, and I thought that my parents were golden. And I made it to eighteen, so I'm like, well, you know, they're going to be married forever. Then I made it to eighteen years old because some of my parent, my uh, friends' parents were divorced by that generation, um, and it was it was it was horrific because then when when that happens, you really learn that some of your childhood wasn't a lie is the wrong word, but you know, there, there were definitely a lot of kind of smoke and mirrors around some of the perceptions you had as a child versus actually what was going on behind closed doors. Yeah, exactly. And probably the biggest impact that my dad's leaving the home had, um, we went from being pretty good kids. I don't know how else to say it. Respectful kids. We were always a little bit afraid of dad, you know, mom was, <clears throat> kind of easy going. Dad was the one that we behaved well for. Ultimately, when he was gone, my brother and I kind of went nuts. Our home became the party home. Um, Wild, crazy things happened in that house that never would have happened if my dad was there. And so that's something that kind of happens with with that presence being gone. And it really pulled the rug out from under my feet. I remember just wanting to still be a good kid, but this is the party house and my brother really went bonkers. Um, but we, fortunately we came back around later, you know, by our later teens, but for those first couple years, it, it was crazy. And my mom got a job, so she was never home. Um, I was a latchkey kid with no key. <laughs> when they didn't give me a key. I was literally locked out of the house all the time and um, had to crawl through the attic to get into the house. And I mean, it was just, crazy. It went from being one way to being another way, very drastic change. And so again, later in life, really doubled down on the importance of mom and dad 
you know, solid mom and dad is what's really ultimately best for the kids if you can if you can do it. Yeah. Well, and I think all the kind of incredible stories and, and lessons that I've learned from all the people who've been on the show, you learn to reverse engineer problems. And, you know, absolutely one of the things that would improve so many elements that are, um, you know, challenging at the moment is a solid household. And you see one of two paths, either come, someone comes from a broken home and then they carry on down the same path or like some people, they're like, right, I just saw what not to do. I'm going to make sure that my home, you know, as best as I can in my control is going to be, you know, the, the castle for my family. That is exactly what I did. And, I, you know, I encourage kids of divorce. I, I looked around at the different families, I have my cousins, my <clears> friends. And I looked at, because mine was basically destroyed, I looked around at what I liked from the different households. I liked that this family did this and this family did that. And I patterned my own life after examples that I chose because my primary one was gone. You can find other examples to to choose your own path from. And that's what I did. And that's to me what resilience is. Just because your life went this way, you can start over and you can choose your own role models, your own patterns, and that's exactly what I did, and I have applied that to my own, my own life, and it's my choice. <laughs> Ultimately, it's my choice. Absolutely, it was. It parallels something I talk about as well. There are pla- there are countries around the world that do things so well, and if we had the humility to learn from each other and take the best prison system, the best drug policy, the best, well, you know, the national health from England, you know, we would all have incredible countries but it takes humility which i know is something that we'll talk about in a little bit to to you know to to say okay maybe we're not the best as we've been saying a lot that maybe we can improve and make everyone everyone better yeah all right well then mike over to you same thing so where were you born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic what your parents did and how many siblings i was born in southern california um down in the uh, anaheim area lakewood um, I have a I have a crazy living, you know, where I've lived. I'm a mix. I'm a mutt. So I've got the SoCal cool vibe. We moved up to North Idaho, so a mountain kid for, you know, a good chunk of my life until I was, you know, in college age. And then we got stationed in Louisiana in the military. So I got a bit of Cajun spice sprinkled on top. And then we've been in the, kind of the wackadoo West Coast, Washington, Seattle area for a good chunk of our married life. So um, I'm a, a mix of quite a few things. Uh, my mom and dad uh, are still married. Uh, it was touch and go for a while there. That's why we moved to North Idaho. Uh, they were just about to get divorced. They were separated. They tried to give it, decided to give it one more shot and to get out of kind of the rat race and what they were doing in Southern California. And boy, we did dramatic change. The mountains of North Idaho, you know, very austere, uh, and it is wonderful. It was a wonderful place to grow up. It was really nice. Um, my uh, my father owned a Harley Davidson shop. Um, as a party, he was never a member, but he rode with Hell's Angels. So you you can imagine some of the family dynamic. I mean, when I was a little kid, I remember sharing drinks with you know Cokes with Hell's Angels and whatever in the shop. And um, of note, he actually made the two. Uh, the movie Easy Rider, the iconic Stars and Stripes tanks, the two original motorcycles for filming that movie got stolen. And he made the ones that finished out the film and, and initially toured with the movie. Um, 
that that lifestyle, the motorcycle lifestyle, everything a bit crazy for a family. And I'm grateful to them. I think they made the right decision. They moved up to North Idaho and they're they're together today. I just talked to them earlier today. They live about 30 minutes from us. Um, growing up in North Idaho was a cool experience growing up in the mountains. And um, we love going back to Southern California. We just got back from Disneyland couple of days ago. So I still love going there. We love Louisiana and we love living over here. They're a good place, good things wherever you go, you know, wherever we go. Uh, I ended up going to college at a little college, just about 30 minutes from where I lived and met Ann there. And she came into the dormitory. I saw that smile. Now, the rest of you can't see the picture here, <laughs> but you can. I can. And Ann said, we've been together pretty much since the moment we met. And if you saw her and you'd saw me, you'd understand why I made that bargain, right? You know, I got a, <laughs> married up. <laughs> yeah, I did pretty good on that deal. Uh, no, you know, um, I've, I've, always, I've always wanted a soulmate. So I don't know that everybody necessarily does. Uh, I'm, uh, just the way I'm wired. I have never wanted and always been uncomfortable with the idea of catting around. Um, I think some of it comes from, you know, growing up in the faith. And, and I don't mean that I don't have bad thoughts because I got as many of them as you do. And the same things that appeal to you appeal to me. But on a heart level, I have always wanted a soulmate. And man, I, bro, not a day goes by that I'm not grateful to God. And I saw this girl, uh, her smile lit me up. Um, and as we started to talk, there was a there was a depth there, a faith and depth. She was, I think, a little like me, a little bit of an older soul. Um, she talked about things that I think a lot of people in college age were not talking about, you know, on a level. She's really bright. Um, so it, it's been wonderful to find her and to realize that I'd won the lottery. And we've been doing our best for you know, a long time now to try to look out for each other, take care of each other, nurture each other. I mean, we'll go into that a little bit more. Um, and it, it's just been a blessing to walk through life with somebody who I, I don't know about the rest of the world. I pretty much know about my mom and dad, but it's wonderful to go through life with somebody who I know has my back. And she has proven it because, you know, I haven't done everything right. You know, I've made mistakes and goofed up and done things that have impacted us and Right, right down the line, she's been at my side and has my back. So I'm very grateful. I would add uh, one thing, just coming from Ann's experiences. There's a whole cottage industry out there trying to justify divorce and trying to justify it's not your fault and it won't hurt the kids and it's better for the kids. And I just want you to know it's total crap. Um, as long as you recognize it is going to have a tough impact on kids when that happens. And it may be the best thing. It may be an abusive relationship, but in the end, it's the very best thing that you two go your separate ways. But man, don't ever tell yourself the lie that the things that you do to bring yourself to divorce aren't going to have an impact on your kids. When mom and dad split, it does. I've been living with a person who's one of the finest people I've ever met, and I can tell you she carries the scars from that. And every, every situation where we talk to people where divorce is apart, there is a, a definite impact on the kids, even when they thrive, there's an impact. And it's why we're going to be forthright. We hate it. We hate divorce. And we know plenty of couples, and they're in the book. We know plenty of couples that divorce was absolutely the right thing to do. 
You're talking to one. Yeah, (laughs) they needed to get out of the situation and they were going to kill each other if they didn't. Um, When you hear us talk, it's that mixed truth. Divorce is terrible. Let's do everything we can to try to keep from being there. But divorce is not the end. Yeah. Well, when you talked about the soulmate as well, I can relate to that kind of essence. When I was teens, like I remember lifeguarding, I think I was like uh, 18, 17. And I would see dads with their kids and be like, that's going to be one, me one day. And as an 18 year old, you know, English lad, that's not normally what most of us think about. But, and so I, I did have that kind of, you know, romantic idea of what a relationship would be like. And so, you know, when I went in, I was head over heels with, with, you know, the first time and that particular dynamic, not wanting to throw stones, but it, it was just something was happening that there was no turning back. You know, there, it, someone else had been chosen outside the marriage and there was nothing I could do about that. So it was kind of beyond uh, repair. But the second time round, I found my soulmate. It took me two times and absolutely it broke my heart for my son. The divorce yeah. broke my heart for my son and I grieved what was going to happen to him, not, not for myself. But the, uh, like you said, the, the, frequency obviously is is high and this is what we're going to talk about is i think a lot of relationships are good they just are broken from from some you know elements that can be addressed but on the other side some people that have been in a relationship that hasn't worked i almost put them on a time well look don't give up you know understand that there are there, the right one is there for you and sometimes it takes the wrong one to find it which is a horrible way of looking at it but i mean it is what it is but seeing you guys and meeting first time is beautiful, but yeah, you know, like my mom divorced and now she's been with her husband for years and years and years and she's madly in love with him. So, you know, but I'm in a hundred percent agree there is a cost for that divorce. And if I have not even regret, if I could change one thing in the entire world, it would be to take the pain away from my son from the divorce. Well, see, and I appreciate the honesty there. That's what I want to hear from people. You know, that that we make mistakes, things go wrong, life comes at us, you don't get to pick everything, you know? Be truthful. Be true about what's true. And there's there's two truths that you articulated there. It had an impact on your son and you wish it hadn't happened. And then what you chose to do from that is it's like, OK, that's real. Now I'm going to make it as good as it can possibly be from this point forward. See, that to me is that's how you win, not by making allowances for everybody and saying, I'm OK, you're OK. and It wasn't your fault. And because I don't feel like then when you move into your next relationship, you're coming at it on a truthful foundation. I'm telling you, the only reason we bring it up, I don't know why this is what we bring up right <laughs> We hear that all the time. We hear that type of stuff. When we engage with couples at this level, the first thing you have to get to is the untruths that they're telling themselves about the relationship, which we'll elaborate more on. Oh, and I just wanted to add that that was something that I also put in the book that was important to me because for two reasons, um, unfortunately, number the number one reason I wrote this, um, the World Health Organization declared um, divorce as the number one catalyst to suicide. And so that's why this is an important topic. And one of the primary reasons for the suicide, and it's 72% men, commits, women typically don't, because the men lose the kids. And the, they, don't, they not only lose their wife, Incomes cut in half and they lose the kids. And so they think, well, the kids don't need me anymore. So I specifically wrote the reasons your kids still need you, even if you're not in the house. 
um, because my dad did do some things right, even though he didn't live with us anymore. He did a lot of things right that really helped with losing him in the home. And so I included that to encourage, especially firefighters, your kids still need you. And there's a lot you can do to help with that pain of, of the divorce. And one of the things he did was he chose to live nearby. He chose back in those days, they didn't, there was no such thing really as joint custody. So we just went over there all the time for dinner. He had us over all the time. Uh, and he started taking me out to lunch on a regular basis, um, which he never did before. So in some ways, our relationship improved uh, and he made that effort. So there are things you can do, dad, to keep things, even if you're not in the home, make sure you're still in your kid's life. And it does. It did help me. It did make it. I didn't totally go off the rails, which I could have if he had completely abandoned us. So. Well, in one uh, one context that it's really good to start with for Ann and I, because you're really you know nice about saying you're married all those years and doing good. Um, one of the columns that she wrote that had, I think, one of the most interesting responses was the title was Don't Be Surprised If We Get Divorced. And everybody's like, what are you talking about? You know, and, and, and if and if you guys are susceptible to divorce, why should we listen to your stuff? You know, <laughs> and the point is, there's no superstars out there. There's no anointed, blessed, awesome, you know, super godly people. Um, we're everything that we talk about in the book, everything that you've experienced, everything that has destroyed relationships. Anne and I are just as susceptible to it as the people to whom the, the relationship exploded. If we do the right things, we have a chance of having the type of relationship we have. The minute we stop doing those things or we get our eyes off our priority, every single negative impact every single foible, every sin can manifest in our lives just as easily as, as the people that we talk to. Yeah. I remember, I think it was Dr. Phil when he got divorced. If I, I think I've got that right. Everyone was like, oh, well then what's the point? Why should we listen to him? And I agree with you completely because he's a human being and he has a lot of experience. And just because whatever happened, happened at that point doesn't negate everything he did. And I think that's a, that's a thing we see a lot at the moment with this cancel culture. Like, if oh, Mike believes this one thing, even though he just told us 200 things that will change our lives. So let's just not listen to him anymore. Because I've had people on here that are incredible, but some of their beliefs I don't align with. I think maybe they're a little kind of narrow, but that's because we're all human beings and, you know, we all believe what we believe. And if it's not outwardly like, you know, hatred, then, you know, as you said, none of us are Jesus. I mean, I, I know I'm not, so... <laughs> Exactly. Well, Mike, I want to go to the kind of career path that you had. So walk me through your entry into the military and then how that transitioned into the fire service. Yeah, um, it's an extenuation of I probably should have got, kept going. I guess when we went to college, uh, Ann and I were going for different degrees. She was going right. Primarily writing was where she had kind of settled by the time I met her. And I was headed into computers and um Neither of us came from any kind of financial backing at all. We were floating our own boat the whole way. And so we, we kind of knew two things. We didn't have a penny to rub between us, <laughs> and we wanted to be together. Those were kind of the two things. And so we couldn't really afford to continue our education. We, we met at community college, so we had you know the next couple of years. How are we going to pay for that? And so we decided that I would go into the Air Force and do the GI Bill and do that whole bit and then come out four years later, 
we'd have some money to fund things, you know, the different time, I think when we were teenagers, you know, it's now I feel like most kids feel like they ought to get all that stuff for free and somebody ought to be paying for it, whatever. That was not the vibe, or at least it wasn't for us. It was, we had to figure it out. And so that seemed a good way to do it. Give uncle Sam four years, get some GI bill money, finish my degree, and then we'd be off and running. Um, and so we ended up getting into the military and I, started to look into the kind of the computer world, but the military decided that my best path was the fire service. And so they stuck me in the fire service. Um, the idea was if you do this for a little while and then we'll see if jobs open up, um, not realizing that I'd won the lottery of life there, at least professional life. I got into the fire service and loved it. Um, I know full well with my temperament and personality if I'd have been stuck in an office all day typing away and doing code or whatever else, I would have, I'd be one of those statistics on the unfortunate wall. I would have gone nuts. Um, so we got, we got stationed in Louisiana. Um, we requested anything west of the Rockies. So just like with the, you know, wanting to be in computers and wanting to be west of the Rockies, the Air Force put us in the fire department and put us in Louisiana. They do what they want. <laughs> I know it's a, a trend in the military and people ask for something. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? Like everything in life, um, wherever you go, there you are. Um, that was the one. It was wonderful for us. Um, going to Louisiana was truly like going to a foreign country for, you know, kids that have been raised on the West Coast. We could barely understand half of what they were saying. And, but we found a, in the military, um, I at least found in the fire service, I found a cool way to start in the job. With, with truly, you know, a bunch of good guys, you know, a bunch of people that were willing to help me learn. Uh, but even as important as that, we found a church home that was willing to raise us as a young married couple. Now with kids, we had kids right off the bat. We found a really strong church home and they accepted our West Coast, you know, eccentricities into this really, you know, Southern world. And uh, we'll forever be grateful to Pineville Park Baptist Church for showing us what what a church community should be, what a church family should be, and really getting some good ideas about starting in marriage with young couples and things like that. Um, we're definitely a product of that. And a lot of what we talk about comes from that. Um, I, I did not enjoy the military, to be candid with you. I mean, I, I, I took the best out of it I could, and I'm grateful for it. I mean, we got to start in the military that I'll forever be grateful for. But, um, I'm a, I don't know. I'm a bit of a free spirit, I guess is the best way to say it, you know, so. Uh, and I, and I did well there. I didn't, you know, I didn't get, I won, won awards and did all the stuff, but I definitely was ready to get out. And I got out, got a job as a corrections officer right off the bat because getting into the fire service is challenging, or at least it was. I don't think it's as challenging now. People are hiring all over the place. But back when I was getting into Seattle Fire, there were five, 6,000 people that would apply for, you know, 30 jobs. It was a tough, tough sledding to get into Seattle Fire. So while I was waiting to get a job, I was a corrections officer. Uh, again, not what necessarily I would pick for a career, but I'm just trying to pay the bills. That's the first thing that popped up with benefits. So I did it. And it was a good experience for me. I mean, it was I've always been mostly on the right side of the law. It was a good experience for me to see the other side of that and to see that for a lot of people, the tipping point to being on one side of that line or another is not as big as you think. And there's, there's, there's some certain things that can happen that push you to one side or the other. And those people were just like me. I'll tell you, most of it, chemicals. If you, if you knock alcohol and drugs out of your 
out of your world, a lot of your problems go away. A, a super amount of your problems. But so I did that for nine months. God smiled on me. I got a job with Seattle Fire. And uh, I finished up, brother, a 33-year career in the fire service about three years ago, three and a half years now. Beautiful. Well, I did, what I didn't ask you was when you were younger, you know, what kind of uh, sports or athletics you did. So talk to me about your physical conditioning and how that paid into the entry of the fire service. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a bias there, and I don't know if it's an appropriate one. <laughs> no, please. This is this is an open well, door. Yes, yeah, so neither neither of my sons enjoyed sports that much, which I think that was God's way of you know humbling me. You know, they were <laughs> bright kids and musical and all this other stuff, and but I never I, I loved athletics. I loved sports. I man, I you know, I baseball and football, and I, I I loved sports, but particularly baseball and football. But I wrestled and did basketball and did all this stuff. Um, I actually have a bias that if you want to be in the fire service it's kind of important to me that you have the team sports background because it's so, it's so intricately interwoven to what we do in the fire service. Um, having goals, personal goals <coughs> that are very important. You have to have personal goals in sports. You have to take care of your business, but also being on teams where it doesn't matter how much you want your goals if the guy next to you doesn't block, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get anywhere. And if the, the person doesn't run the right route or if the, the shortstop doesn't field the grounder or if the, the team isn't shifted in the right direction, et cetera, et cetera. I love the interplay of, of what you learn in a sports dynamic, learning to get along, learning to look out for your teammates. I think it translates amazingly well into the fire service. And then, you know, a, a good deal of athletics has to do with conditioning making sure you're fit, ready to go. Um, probably as, as important as anything. Forgive me, I have a little bit of a cold, so. No problem. I know it's going to be irritating to hear me coughing, and I apologize. One of the most important things about being in the fire service is having that ability to hit that next year. When you're beat, you're exhausted, you're tired, you don't feel like you can go any further. And you do. You get that from sports. Absolutely. Well, I agree. And that's one of the, the things about, um, for example, even things like CrossFit, which has mixed reviews depending on, you know, how much time people have spent around it and if they've just seen the YouTube highlights and that kind of thing. But, you know, that being in that, that, that pain cave, that, that horrible place to, to be able to visit that, whether it's through sports, whether it's through training, whether it's through martial arts is so important. Cause I mean, I, it's easy, especially in, you know, the, the environment that we're in now, as far as, you know, the, the lack of fires, the reality is a lot of fire departments do not see a lot of fires these days. So we have to find misery to put ourselves in so that we can get to that place. Cause God forbid you're like Ricky Nuttall, who I had on the show and Grenfell Tower is on fire and you have to ascend, you know, tens and tens and tens of flights of stairs, um, with all your gear. You know, that's, you're going to find out if you're prepared or not by that point. Well, and even things like, I noticed it in the training division because we had people who would come in. I'm telling you, if we were just running around the or running around the training center, they could run laps around me. You know, they had that type of conditioning. What they couldn't do is they couldn't throw ladders and have have the fatigue on the muscles and the core temperature that we would get in. We don't talk about the core temperature often. What I hear, 
just the core temperature from your gear where you're superheated and you're fatigued and you're tired. And oh, and we have to do it again. Finding that next gear as a training captain, I looked for that probably as much as I looked for anything within them. That and being able to look out for your teammate, being a part of a team. Absolutely. Well, I think that's what I found because I did a lot of gear workouts when I was still in. And then even now I'll throw my gear on when we do certain things in the gym. Um, but it is the heat, dissipating the heat. I mean, working, I've, I worked in Anaheim and I worked in like the Miami area and Orlando area and I'm an Englishman. So I chose basically to cook in my gear my whole career. But I mean, that's another level, like not being able to offset that heat while you're required to work. Um, you know, and I don't know if I ever found truly how to overcome that. I think you're just trying to build up a little bit of a tolerance at best. Well, recognizing that it's normal. You know, I think I think some of the people that I watched and we were starting to get a lot of kids from like office jobs because they were smart. They were good kids, good character, good grades. They could take a test. They worked out at the local gym, so they were, you know, normal fit. <coughs> they would come into our environment. Now we superheat them and they're tired and, you know, we're, we're putting some tension on, them. you know, we're, we're talking to them the way their parents never talked to them. Right. You know, get in there, get up there. Come on, let's go. Just kind of recognizing, Oh, I don't like this. This feels terrible, but okay. I want to go save that person. Getting past that hurdle, I think is absolutely essential. And that's, I think what differentiates people who should be in what we do and people who are, you're fine. This just isn't the thing for you. Absolutely. All right. Well, I want to shift back to the kind of relationship side. So as a, a married couple, when you entered Seattle in, was it 1990? Have I got that right? Um, so yeah, obviously it's a very different time as far as what was discussed back then. So, you know, you have two types of uh, relationships. You have marriages where the one you know, husband or wife was already a firefighter. And then you have the relationships where they go into the fire service together. So talk to me about that initial year, that probationary year. That is definitely the year that I noticed big changes in Mike. Cause by then we'd been married five years, two little boys. You would think the military would have prepared me, but it really didn't because he was in a small little fire department on the base, which never really had any, a single fire. I mean, they had no fires in those four years we were there. Um, starting to notice a little of the things that I talk about at, as a corrections officer, but it was only nine months. <laughs> and then we hit Seattle Fire, full-on recruit school, um, assigned to a, a double house right out of recruit school, um, very you know big city, busy area, one of the busiest houses in the city. And that's when I really noticed him changing. So we're the couple that went into it um, together. Um, and I, I think that in a way helped because I recognized the changes I was seeing. I recognized them as being the fire service. Um, but back then they didn't tell us anything. I, I, nobody ever talked to the spouses. Nobody warned them. Um, Mike is a tough, resilient, good-natured, high-energy guy, um, but even he was becoming tired, grouchy, detached, um, irritable. Um, all I can say is he went from high energy to being very tired and, and sluggish. And so it's, what do you do with that? You know, as a young wife with two little boys, 
I'm seeing this one, this person that I love, my soulmate, changing before my eyes. And there were days, I'm not kidding you, where I literally would just cry and say, I don't know if I can do this. This, this is not the person I married, especially at first, because um, as a probationary firefighter, he could be fired at any minute. And, and plus, in those days, they really razzed the new guy, and he had to do all the grunt work as well as learning this new job, as well as being on the brink of being fired with a family to support. So he was under tremendous pressure, didn't always handle it perfectly, um, did get irritable and short-tempered with me with, when he never had been before. Um, so, but what do you do with that as a spouse? This person that I married has changed and how do I adapt? But like I said, I'm determined and I love him. So we just found, I found ways to cope. We, um, uh, it took us a long time to, to solve some of the immediate problems. Um, and it actually took me 24 years later to put those things into words because <laughs> you just, you learn and you adapt on the fly and figure out what works and what doesn't work. But later in life, um, and that's kind of what brought us to the book. Um, when Mike made training captain, he was running into firefighters he hadn't seen since those early days because you spread out and you do your career in different stations. And now as the training captain, he was seeing guys every day at, at the training center um, and running into them and saying, you know, how, how is your family? I haven't seen you in 10 years. I haven't seen you in 15 years. How's your family? And every single day for the first probably month or two that he was there, um, he was hearing this again and again. Oh, we're divorced. We got divorced a long time ago. I'm on my second marriage. I'm on my third marriage. And so Mike was just devastated by this. And so he asked me, um, he came home one day and said, you know, gosh, so-and-so's marriage is struggling. He's asking me for advice. How have we made it? What, what did we do? Do you, do you have any insights? Um, are firefighters tough to live with? <laughs> And I said, oh, yeah, I've got a lot of insights. I, I had seen all these things. We had adapted. This is 24 years later. Um, what it, so it forced me to put it into words and what we did and trial and error and how I survived with zero help from anyone um, inside the fire department, outside the fire department. Nobody talked to the spouse or about <laughs> marriage or what you're going to face. Um, so it forced me to put it all down into words and kind of went from there. That's how we got here today was his trying to help other firefighters whose marriages were falling apart. And it started out very personal, you know, just things he could tell them that worked for us because um, he didn't know what to say. <laughs> so I did. It took turning to me, you know, are we hard to live with? Yes, you are. <laughs> you can be very hard to live with at times. And it was definitely related to the fire service because like I said, we were married before and he wasn't hard to live with before um, there. And, and again, the beginning pressures were more intense. He mellowed out as he got more accustomed to the fire service too. Um, but that's, that's kind of our unique experience was my observing the changes, knowing they were definitely fire service and writing it out with him and helping us, you know, find how do we live with this, this intense pressure, this sleep deprivation, these long separations, you know, as a couple, he's gone for 24 hours or more. That's a long time to be apart with, especially with little children. And um, that's kind of where we 
where we went from there was putting it down in words and how we did it, how we made it. So now with I heard you'd mentioned Mike in I think it was Jim Moss's podcast. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounded like you had a four shift system in Seattle. So was that a 2472 you guys were on? Uh, 2448, 2496. And then we had to do a makeup shift in the middle of the 96. But wonderful. It was a wonderful shift. Wonderful, wonderful amount of time home. You know, we're grateful to God for Seattle Fire, man, mm-hmm. and, you know, how we got to do work. But, uh, she's right, though. It does. It adds some peculiarities to home life when you're gone for that amount of time, um, it adds some challenges. Absolutely. Well, I mean, you think about the the young firefighter, you know, I think about Hialeah, which was my first one. Um, you know, you're, as you said, you've, you've never like lived in a strange place. You know, you're floating from station to station. You've got these LTs that may or may not like you. You know, for 12 months, your job can be taken away at any moment. You're driving streets that you have no idea where you're going to hospitals that you have no idea about. There's so much. And as you know, as you talked about, as you get better and better and better, that what you don't know becomes less and less and less. I mean, there's so much that we still don't know in, in deep in our career, but you, the, the pressure on the firefighter itself for themselves is immense. And I think one of the, the problems that I see, um, in myself when I look back and, and, you know, moving forward with other people is it's very hard then to punctuate to, to make space between what you just did and, and saw at the station and returning to dad slash husband before you actually go home. Yeah, we just, um, to me, this is an absolutely amazing truth and observation that was just told to me in Dallas. We just taught a, a class in Dallas. A firefighter came up to me who had just returned from combat in Afghanistan. He just got out of the military. He told me that the fire service was way, way, way harder on his marriage than being a combat soldier. And I was incredulous. I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, it's the transition from firehouse home, firehouse home, firehouse home. He said, it's all the same stuff that I experienced in combat. But when I was in combat, we stayed there for a year and we stayed there. We stayed in that mode. My marriage was fine because it was completely separate from it. But he said, here, going to the firehouse, coming home has has nearly destroyed my marriage. They survived combat, but they're struggling in the fire service. So I thought that was fascinating. There's something about coming and going, shifting gears and what we expect of our firefighters and our first responders, we expect them, expect you to just do this with, with no issues, no hassle. We just require that of you and to shift from one gear to another day after day for 30 some odd years. It's almost unbelievable. It's almost just way too much to ask. So that's why I feel compelled to try to help a little bit because it's, that is a big ask (laughs) to live in these two different worlds for so many years and not have any issues. It's it's too much, it's too much of an ask. Absolutely, well to turn it around the other way as well, to ask a wife, a husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, whoever it is, to be in that relationship for 48, whatever it is, and then be a single parent for 24, and then be married and then single parent. So it's, it's the same the other way, you know I mean? You know, that, and you get the wildland firefighters, those men and women, the, the partners that stay at home are single for months and then dad mom comes home 
and wants to jump back in again. They're like, wait a second, you know, I've been actually been doing pretty well on my own. So you're going to have to yeah. give me some time to transition back into this family. So it affects, you know, the, the, the both partners and the children. And, and like, I agree with you completely compared to the average person who goes to work for you know, X amount of hours and comes home that evening. It is, you know, on paper, almost insanity when you look at it. Yeah, it can be. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, then, two. I want to get to some of the, the the solutions that you guys saw within your own marriage you were able to apply. But before we do, did you notice any common denominators of some of these men and women that were reporting that their marriages have failed? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll tell you what Anne did brilliantly in the book that uh, we co-wrote it, but the bulk of the material is Anne. She, she did the bulk of it, and I came in after and responded from a firefighter's perspective. She distilled down from a whole bunch of stuff that she had been writing about. She distilled down to five conversations. Five, and, and the nice thing about the conversations is if you're, if you're going to get along with anybody, you have to be able to talk to them. And in marriage, it's absolutely crucial. And the very first thing that we can see right off the bat is that if you can't communicate with each other without gutting, tearing each other apart, I mean, I, I think it's it's not unique to us, but one of the first things that you will notice when you're out with a couple, if they're ripping each other apart in front of you, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. If they if, if if the person that's supposed to have your back is willing to expose your weaknesses, cut you down, tear you down in front of friends or other family. And I'm not talking about joking around or, you know, those types of things. I mean, cutting into them. There is there right off the bat. I know there's problems. If that doesn't get sorted out, there's going to be problems. Not being able just to talk about the things that are going on in your world as a broad, a broad umbrella, and then bringing it down to the fire service when Ann distilled it down to Here's five critical things that at some point you've got to talk about and navigate within your relationship that are going to have an impact. And they're they're not unique to the fire service, but they are present in anybody who's going to be in the fire service. And you you actually we just hit one. We didn't call it what it is, but Anne wrote about reentry time. That's the first the first conversation that you have to navigate coming from rock and roll to home security and safety. You know, and interestingly, um, that one resonates with pretty much everybody who works because everybody has challenges within their workplace. You know, I mean, even spouses who are going to work and they're going to teach kids or they're, you know, going to sell cars or going to the office building at Microsoft or whatever. There are challenges within their workspace. And then they've got to transition from that back into home. That connection time causes so many problems that reconnect. And the rest of your time off builds out of that reconnection. And so we talk about it when we teach. I mean, we wasted a lot of time, bro, a lot of hours that we don't get back fighting because of the intersection from driving from Seattle fire home. I'm tired, seen crummy things or been getting ripped on by, especially when I was younger, recruit, getting ripped on by the lieutenant or the captain, being a kid who grew up in the mountains. Now I'm in Seattle. I mean, even just navigating that and traffic and getting around the city and being in one of the most liberal cities in the nation, hearing things I've never heard before and seeing people I've never seen before and things, you know, boy, oh boy. And then I, you know, then you segue back into quote unquote normal home, you know, my love of my life, my kids, et cetera, et cetera. Her wanting to connect with me, 
because we've been apart, right? And she's a loving wife and she's a cool person. And she wants to hear about it. She wants to, what happened? And oh, and by the way, this broke and you need to talk to the kid about da 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 da. You know, and I remember, I think she jokes about it now, but I called it the assault, you know, at the door. And I'm just trying to segue into the fact we wasted so much time because I would not respond well. She would get her feelings hurt. She felt like she was more excited to see me than I was excited to see her. Now we're in a fight. And it takes however long it takes to navigate that. Sometimes it took a couple days and now it's time to go back to work. You start the cycle again and again and again. And the really cool thing about reentry time and why she termed them conversations, and I think it was brilliant. There's no cookie cutter. You know, you cannot just look at our relationship and say, well, I'm going to do that because we're wired the way we're wired. Right. You know, I'm, my personality is mine and it's hers. Our experience is ours. We have a particular faith that drives a lot of what we do. Uh, we have priorities in life that aren't necessarily universal priorities. There are things that are important to us. First one right off the bat, we probably should have mentioned it when we were talking about our lives. Uh, Anne went to an Ivy League school. She's smarter than me. <clears throat> she could have done whatever she wanted to do. We decided when we got married that we were going to raise our own kids. We weren't going to part them out to be raised by somebody else. That's our decision, right? That was a that was a priority to us. We wanted, when our kids fell down and got hurt, we wanted one of us to be there. We wanted to raise them, to get them to school age, and then send them out into the great big world. What that meant was somebody had to stay home. And what we decided to do, even though Ann was, could have done whatever she wanted, she stayed home, I went to work. That was meeting our priorities. There are a ton of you out there that are not going to do it that way, and that's totally cool. As long as you recognize that now comes with consequences. You know, time becomes an issue. Ships passing in the night becomes an issue. You got to decide what your priorities are and you've got to go with those. One of the priorities that I hope you make right off the bat, the very first conversation, is how with how we've chosen to live life, how do we navigate this transition back, you know, together? And a lot of couples, it's you get home, the spouse hands you the kids. <laughs> And it's off and running, right? Because they got to get to the bank or, you know, some, some couples, they got to get to their station, their fire station, or maybe the handoff happens at the firehouse. Okay. That's your, that's your variables. Now apply the principle that that transition can cause a whole bunch of troubles. How do you navigate it? What, what based upon how you're wired, can you do it? And you cannot read that in a book. What you can do is you can sit down over coffee when you chill loving each other and say, how do we make this work to where we're not at odds when we come together? And couples all over the world now are, are I think, navigating that much better, not because they apply the cookie cutter principle, but because they talk to each other and said, hey, for us, this is how it works. And now we know it's real. That's as important as anything. This is real. How do we navigate? Um, well, just to kind of add to the, to the reentry time for us, just to give a specific example, um, I, like Mike said, I was home and, and I would assault him at the door with 20 questions and how to go, what'd you do, blah, 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 I need this. What I learned to do, um, again, after many failures, <laughs> was to just leave him alone. That's what reentry time kind of is, is just give him a minute to get in the door before I would question him or overwhelm him with needs for my needs, kids' needs, the house needs. Just give him a minute recognizing that 
he's been up all night, all these different things. And give him a break, give him a minute, let him come in, let him take a bath or a nap or whatever he needs. Just give him that time. And then later in the day, uh, he knows what I need. I just want to talk to him and connect with him and spend some focused time together. When I gave him that break later in the day, he was totally willing to give me what I needed, um, which was communication and, and connection and emotional connection. And, um, and I got it to the degree that I really wanted it. So it's reciprocal. I gave him a break. He gave me time later. And not only reciprocal, but better, because trying to demand that at the door, uh, I wasn't getting what I wanted anyway, because he wasn't in the frame of mind to really talk to me. So again, after many failures of of being disappointed at that encounter, <laughs> we figured it out. And I just put a name to it. I just learned to call it re it's reentry time. Give him a break. Understanding his world is way more intense, even probably than the average profession needs it even more. Everybody needs it, but firefighters particularly need it because of the intensity of what they've just been through. So to give him that grace, give him that patience, give him a break. And it came back to me because now we're not only not fighting, but we're really on each other's side. I'm giving him what he needs. He's giving me what I need. And then our days off together are much more fulfilling and peaceful. And we're ready to do it again. We're not going off mad. We're, we're going off good. Then we can do it again. The days we failed to do it, um, and we did fail, even though we knew not to do it. We Every now and then I would still fail and, or he'd fail and um, but it's an ongoing conversation. As your needs change, adapt a little. Well, I can't give you a two-hour nap, but maybe you could listen to music in the car on the way home to help you shift instead of political talk radio or, um, you know, go out to the shed for a little while and tinker around or whatever you need. Um, constantly adapt whatever it takes to help you shift shift gears because that's the point of it is to help you shift gears. And it's all reciprocal. Yeah. Every 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 conversation, everything that we talk about, it's reciprocal. So your spouse gives you reentry time when you come in. They give you a gap. Give them a gap. A lot of a lot of spouses are alone with the kids all day, going crazy. They need adult conversation, or they just need a break away. Or you know, your wife comes home, or your husband comes home from teaching school, and they've had more social interactions than any normal human being should ever have. And all they want when they get home is to not have that. I got you. You know, reciprocate. You asked what's the, the, the key delineator for a relationship that's in trouble? Almost always it's the degree of selfishness within the individuals. If you can if you can navigate the selfishness part of things, it makes all the other things that are flawed in you much better. If you're not always looking for what you get, somebody to take care of you, somebody to fulfill your needs, those types of things. And you turn it around to say, I'm going to look out for this person and I'm going to put my time, effort and energy and my thoughts and my focus into making their life wonderful. If both parties are doing that, man, you got a great shot. You know, you got a, you got a really good shot for when the things that you can't control in life land. Yeah. Well, I think what I've seen as well is that both parties are right. And that's the problem. So that's what ends up with with a, an argument if you don't open the communication. Because yes, the firefighter probably hasn't slept, especially in today's age of EMS transport. 
And yes, the the partner has been at home with the cats, with the kids, whatever it is, and needs a break as well. Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So you know, when when there's that meeting, they're both right. So they're both trying to persuade the other one why they're right as well, or the other one's wrong, or whatever. And so you end up getting nowhere. Um, what I want to kind of touch on because I heard you again talking about it in one of the other podcasts. You had a very interesting perspective on putting the fire service first. Now, I left my dream department. I was a Tillerman on Anaheim Fire and wow. with, with a rock star crew. And we'll get to that in a bit. I had that experience and I drove away for my family. I had my son and she, my, my ex wanted to go back to, to Florida. So we up sticks and left. And uh, you talked about crying when you, when you did your last day. I sobbed like a three year old girl on my drive home from there, but. He and her at the time were more important than my career. And it broke my heart, but it is what it is. And then we ended up getting divorced, which, you know, didn't sit well either. But I mean, that's that was the plan. That was the universe. That was God. Uh, but for me, and, and even now, like transitioning out and doing this, it's I'm technically not wearing the uniform, but this is also for the benefit of my family as well. And the fact that I wasn't bringing the organizational stress that I was enduring the last department and the anger and frustration home with me as well. So I'd love to just, you know, get both your perspectives on that going from, I want to make a difference in the community. I've become a firefighter, a cop, whatever it is to, Oh no, this comes first, you know, fire than family. So if, you know, I'll just give you the mic and you can kind of, um, what they call it? Wax lyrical on that. <laughs> That's one of the, the conversations that I came up with too, um, is, and I call it put, put your first family first. That that was a problem that I was seeing, and it's something that crept into our home too. Um, and by first family, I mean your immediate family, your your spouse and your children. That's your first family. Most professions don't have the honor and the the privilege of having that second family, and only firefighters and police and military kind of truly get that that these aren't your coworkers. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. And I think that's because of um, you're putting your life in their hands. You, your life is at risk. And and only in these professions where you can be killed doing what you do, uh, can you truly get that, that, that your life is dependent upon that person standing next to you. And so they form very tight bonds that go above and beyond mere coworkers. Yes, there's spats and disagreements, but when the chips are down, when, when somebody's hurt, um, I, firefighters will give it their all to save each other. And, and even if they don't like the person, that's their brother, that's their sister. They're going to do everything they can to save them. That's the good side of it. Um, plus you're serving the community. It's a calling. Um, you're saving lives, which is a total calling. I, I think it's a calling from God himself, you know, to put your life on the line for other people. It's compelling, uh, exciting, adrenaline rush, awesome work that is just next level. Now, oftentimes, and, and plus these are typically, at least my husband, type A athlete, achiever, always top of his class, you know, sharp on and off duty. He's always training and learning and reading and achieving and doing overtime and projects. And again, because this is all about life and death. So it's compelling. And there have been many times over our marriage that I have started to feel second, that, that 
our kind of, I guess, boring, for lack of a better word, our boring home life uh, doesn't even begin to compete with what he's dealing with, life and death, exciting, compelling stuff, you know, heroic stuff on the news. Um, Mike's a very good speaker, so they always are interviewing him uh, for TV. You know, I mean, this, this guy's a hero. He's awesome. Um, but at times I have started to feel second and, and, je- and I guess lack of a better word, jealous. Uh, and once you start to feel that you are in competition with another love, that jealousy can turn to hatred and resentment and bitterness towards the fire service. Um, and that's the last thing I wanted to do was, was hate something that he loved, um, but it's jealousy. And so we would literally, um, the minute I would start to feel that, that, that this is coming between us, um, we would just say, halt the engine, sit down, cup of coffee, whatever it takes to help us just sit down and really talk about this and, and where can we cut some of the activities that are starting? Plus, recreational, you know, wanting to hang with the firefighters off duty just for fun because they're very like-minded and they did all kinds of fun things together, too. Um, where can we make some cuts? Because I don't want to resent <coughs> the fire department. I want to be supportive of it. Um, and it's really just all about time management. That's what it boils down to. And that's how you... Um, it's a simple answer. It's not easy, but the way to show someone that they're first is really with your time and your attention. And, and so we can't, he, you know, I never wanted him to quit. I never wanted him to quit the fire department because that's how we paid the bills. Um, but there were things he could say no to. And, and he got really good over the years to, to learn to run like the bigger projects by me first. So I could at least have a say that if I take this on, this is what it's going to mean. Are you okay with that? Uh, in the past, he used to just say yes. <laughs> and then I would hear about it down the line or on the phone conversation with somebody else. It's like, what? You're going to do what? You're going to be gone how much? And um, So we learned to just say, he learned to say no when he could um, and to run things by me first before he would say the big yeses. Um, and as long as I felt first, then I'm 100% on board and supportive. The minute I start to feel second, jealousy and resentment creeps in. Um, and that was another thing. Some of it's paid, you know, big, big bucks attached to this, to this project. Is he saying yes because he wants to, or is he saying yes because he knows I will like the money? So that was something I had to look at and say, you know what? We don't need this money. I'd rather have you around. And so he got really good at not taking every single overtime. Um, and I had to make sure he knew I was okay with that. You know, that's why it's a conversation, you know, make sure, like Mike said, you're putting your top priorities first and your top priority for us was our marriage, even over the fire service, even over money. Um, and I also knew way down deep and he assured me that if there was ever a time when um, I really genuinely could not reconcile the fire department. He would pick me. He, he assured me of that. And so I guess just knowing that um, helped me to be on board with his career. And Mike's had an amazing career. And I like to think I'm a huge part of that because I've been supportive. But back to him, he was good at making sure I knew I was number one. So that <laughs> answer that. <laughs> Um, 
going to, I alluded to it earlier, the priorities. This can be hard to talk about or to say it in the right way. I'll do my best. Um, the first family first idea really goes down to your priorities. What, what comes first, what comes second, what comes third. That's why it's a conversation because you know, I, we really can't have that conversation between you and your spouse. You have to have it, you know, because you know what's, you know what the answers are going to be. And there are some, some surprises when you have that conversation. Um, all we can do is talk about what ours are as an example for you to then talk about what yours are. The point is you have to be honest about it or you're going to crash. You can say, fam, you can say that your relationship is your top priority. We hear that all the time. But then when we burrow down just a little bit, it's not. And it comes down to two things. You look at your week, see where you spend your time. Look at your checkbook, see where you spend your treasure, where your money, you spend your money. Those two things, for the most part, are going to show you what your priorities are in life. Wherever your time and your money goes, those are your priorities. And I think if you do that, you'll be really surprised. Um, just because we're talking about our relationship, here's what it looked like. We decided that before God on our knees, the cover of the book, for those of you who have the book, the cover of the book, you see two kids who are young, baby. <laughs> 20. Yeah, we're 20 years old. <laughs> We are on our knees before a God that we believe in as much as I believe I'm talking to you right now, both of us. And we're committing our lives. We're saying we're going to love each other, cherish each other, care for each other, look out for each other, and walk through life arm in arm. And we made a sacred vow to God that is no small thing for Ann and I. And I know other people do it different ways. That's why you got to apply stuff the way it applies to you. You asked us to talk about ours. That's what we did there. On the cover of the book, you see that commitment being made and all around it, you see some of the things that the fire service brought into our world to kind of challenge that commitment. Exciting, cool fire, which is so compelling. It's way more cool to do that than to come home and change diapers, you know? Um, kids coming into the mix and the challenges that kids bring. My crew, who I loved and who pulled me away because I wanted to spend time with them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these things swirled around. If you don't have your priorities straight, the fire service can tear you away because it's just so damn compelling. And let's face it, we talked about selfishness. Once you start to have success and people start asking you, hey, do you want to work on this program? Hey, do you want to go to this drill? Hey, do you want to do this? Man, it's awesome on your ego. People want me, you know? And so, yeah, I'm going to say yes because I don't want to disappoint them. Here's the thing with priorities. Everything you say yes to, we, we have this idea, let me put it this way, we have this idea in the American culture in particular that we can have it all because we live in the greatest nation in the world, we live with so much surplus, opportunity, if you want it and you work for it, I, <laughs> there, there's just not a whole lot that's not available to you in our country if you want to go for it. It gives us the impression that we can have it all and it's just not true, it's not. Because there's 24 hours in the day, and by how your biology is, you're wired with a certain amount of emotional energy. You're, you're stuff that allows you to get up and give your best, and, and then you burn that emotional energy and you drop. You only have so much money. You only have so much time, all that. Your priorities dictate what gets spent where. 
And if your priority is your relationship, but 90% of your energy is going to the fire service, you're going to have to reconcile the fact that that's a notional idea that your relationship is the most important thing. By sitting down with your spouse and saying, okay, let's hash it out, man. What, what do we got to do? What's the most important thing? Ann and I were very, it was very, became very clear that we were going to feature our relationship. That was what was going to matter. Now we do have to make a living. So we got to work, right? So it's not, I don't want to make an idol out of your marriage. It's not an idol that you bow down to and sacrifice all to, but that it took priority and that we knew we had to work. So we figured out a way to make a living, you know, the living that we could do it. We knew that we wanted to have kids, or at least Anne knew we wanted to have kids. Here's the compromise. She wanted four. She wanted a big family. I wanted zero. We had two, right? That's perfect you know, math. We, yeah, <laughs> yeah, we sorted it out. You know, we figured it all out. Um, but, but we wanted to raise our own kids. And as I described earlier, what that meant was somebody was going to have to be there to raise them. The way we sorted it out was that she would raise them, I would make the living, and we, we would sort it out that way. And it, and it worked out marvelously. That's not a perfect solution because you know the realities now of one income. We lost and we'll never get back, candidly. We will, unless something crazy happens, we'll never get back 30-plus years of what Ann could have done as an attorney or whatever else. And that compounding financial reward We'll be working probably till the day we die in some form or fashion. But it met our priorities. I hope I hope it makes sense. It, we, we wanted to love each other. We wanted to raise our own kids. And we wanted to have time for each other. And, brother, we will never regret the fact that we had so much time to spend together and grow together as kids with young kids. I got to coach my kids' ball teams instead of having to watch somebody else you know, do all that type of stuff. I got to spend time in their schools. We got to take them out of school and go on little adventures because we prioritized time. The consequence, finances were, you know, tight for us. And that's the, that's why you have to have the priority conversation because there is no easy answer. And everything you say yes to means you say no to a bunch of other things. You got to decide what gets yes and what gets no, and hopefully those things meet your priorities. Yeah, well, that's such a great perspective, um, you know, and it's pertinent for for several reasons in my own life as well. But when when you talk about the training, I mean, some gigs, like you said, you get it paid for. What I found a lot being a young fireman in the departments that I worked at, especially back in Florida, was you know you work in fifty six hour work weeks, so twenty four forty eight consistently, and then you're an aggressive firefighter. So you take the special ops class, not even to be on a specialist team, just because you want to be good at what you do, extrication and rope rescue. And so where, you know, where I've worked, well, that involves taking vacation time and paying out of pocket to get the skills that I need to be better at my job. So that's a very slippery slope too. And I don't think I even communicated as well with my, my current wife as I should have. Now we were a great team and, you know, luckily it didn't need that depth of a conversation, but, um, you know, that's, that's something I see as well. A lot of us just want to, like you said, lives are at stake. So I want to be good. I need to go to medic school. I need to go to special ops classes. And that takes money and it takes time away from our family. The other area that I've really seen a lot of people kind of dive into, I mean, like you said, the materialistic element, which is very interesting for an immigrant, having the traditional American dream in my head and coming here and it's Winnebago's and jet skis. Um, but, it's also a coping mechanism for mental ill health. You know, one of the, the addictions that no one talks about is overtime. And I see a lot of men and women, you know, 
pseudo abandon their family because it's easier just to be told to get on a rig every time the tones go off than to go home and face your actual problems. Well, we, it's not it's not a joke, but we try to be lighthearted about it when we're teaching. I usually say that I may not be the best marriage counselor in the world because I end up being too direct. But just what you talked about, and it's interesting that you use the word jet ski. Um, two separate occasions, and one right now, I can see the guy's face. Uh, he, I, I remember I was talking to him, and he just looked wasted, you know, drug baggy eyes and drawn tired. I said, "Man, you know, you look." toasted he says ah bro so much overtime and at that time there was a bunch you could have as much as you wanted like now you can have as much overtime as you want it's compelling it's a lot of money um his his answer was you know i I said well man that's easy you know if you're exhausted and you're not seeing your family and stop working so much that's you know not i know i'm a truckie but i'm not i'm not a brainiac (laughs) and uh he said yeah but man we want toys you know, we'll, we'll get a vacation down the road and then we'll enjoy it. But we want the toys. We want the bank account. So I just got a brand new jet ski and it's fully paid for. And I remember I said to him, and don't take it the wrong way, everybody out there, that I'm a cold, heartless dude. But I said, yeah, bro, but how awesome is the jet ski going to be when some other dude is riding it? And the punchline of that story is some other dude is riding his jet ski. Family split apart. Pension is cut in half. All, everything got divided, and I don't believe it got divided equally. You know, it usually doesn't work that way. And the kids are spending holidays at different houses. Um, again, you, we, we can't have it all. What you want to do is have the bulk of your time, effort, and energy going towards what you as a couple, when you have the conversation about keeping first family first, goes towards your priorities. And, and here's the final thing I would say. <clears throat> I can speak to it from experience now. Whereas when we first started, I couldn't. But three and a half years ago, I have a picture of it. I have a picture of my coat going on the hook for the final time. And my 33-year career of being in an operations fire company going to fires was over. <clears throat> Brother, I can honestly say, I think most people who know me would back this up. I gave Seattle Fire a good bang for the buck. I really did. I gave it my best effort. I didn't do everything right, <laughs> but I gave it my best effort. Do you know how long it took Seattle Fire to move on from me? Based on the 540 episodes I've had in my personal experience, I'm guessing a blink of an eye wasn't too far off. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, it's, uh, I don't want to over-dramatize it, and I'm not taking a shot at my organization, but uh, I worked a half shift the last day I worked because of hours and end-of-month stuff. I could only work till 10 o'clock. And at 10 o'clock at night, my career was just, my ops career was done. I couldn't even log on to my own rig that morning because they had already kicked me out of the email system and exited me from the system. I couldn't log on. My crew had to log me on. That's how important you are, you know? And look, you know, it doesn't mean that I wasn't appreciated or loved or Seattle Fire gave me and my family. I'll be grateful to the day I die. Everything I get to do now, even talking to you, is mostly because of Seattle Fire. You know, the, uh, the referred respect that I got from that organization. But the day you leave, they're going to fill your spot and they're going to move on from you because they have to, because the runs are going to keep coming. Fires are going to keep coming. That day would have been an absolute tragedy after giving a good bang to Seattle fire. If I had gone home to an empty house or a divided home because we prioritized our marriage, but within the context of doing that, 
honorably earned a good living and gave Seattle good bank for a buck. I came home to a loving home that I'm still in today. And we we got to have both, like I said, the, the first family first because we were very careful to make sure that we featured our marriage. And I like to say just as long as I always knew I was number one, that I was his very best friend, we view that as a foundation. And when we're very best friends, that's what I need. I need to be number one. Then we could build from there. Um, and he did. He got to have both. If you don't, then it can all just come crashing down. If, if the marriage goes, the career can suffer. Um, so you, you can have both, but you have to have that conversation of featuring first family first. Yeah. Well, stay on you for a second. And one area that I've seen over and over again, I mean, I saw it in myself and I've heard it from, you know, all branches of military and, and first responder professions. It's very easy for us to identify as a firefighter as you know a police officer whatever it is and you know we've got that community we've got that tribe we've got that purpose um we've got that adrenaline and then one day the bay doors do close behind us whether it's you know promotion to a to a desk job or whether it's retirement or you know even being fired or hurt and that can be very very hard for people so you know you guys gave me the perspective going into the fire service what was that like what was mike transitioning out like on on him and also your perspective you know from, from the wife's eye too yeah i'll be honest i was kind of spooked <laughs> it's like now what you know i've got i finally got used to this now we're gonna do this um it it was a transition and we both believe it or not we both we both grieved the loss. I grieved the loss because I'm very proud of his certain. He was an amazing captain. I mean, I'm his biggest fan, but he was an amazing captain. He ran the busiest firehouse in the history of the city of Seattle. He ran it. He was awesome at it. I mean, he, in my opinion, he was better than most chiefs out there. I mean, in Seattle, I mean, he knew how to, he knew fire. He knew how to, handle people. He knew how to run the firehouse. Um, it, it was all of his skills coming together at the very peak of his career and just this amazing leader and officer. And he's a servant leader and love the firehouse, love the firehouse parties, love the other firefighters. Um, we both grieved that because they do, they move on without you and you're no longer part of that. And it took us a while, both of us, to see a fire truck go by and not get emotional. <laughs> you know, he's not on it anymore. He went out riding a rig. He never even became a chief. Um, it was a, a mourning and a grieving period for us both. And the good thing about it, and we always say this, it hurts because it was good. If it didn't hurt, that means it wasn't good. So, so we both grieved that. We both had to comfort each other and um, reassure. I had to really reassure him too, that, that you're still awesome. You will always be a firefighter. You've just now shifted into a different role because I think it is, it's your personality. This, this, these jobs draw a certain personality. Um, and he's definitely that personality. And that has, that will never change. He's a doer. He's a giver. He's a, he's a fixer. He cares about people. Um, one of the cool things that we've been able to do, and I encourage all retired firefighters to do this Stay involved. The fire service still needs you. You still have wisdom to give. 
Um, and we've been fortunate to be able to still do that, you know, do have the marriage stuff. And he still teaches a bunch of classes. But if you're not an instructor, maybe do, you know, talk shows like you're like you do or um, go down and volunteer. There's there's a group in Seattle called the Fire Buffs and they bring drinks and food to the active fires to, to take care of the firefight. And most of them are retired firefighters. Um, there's all kinds of things that you can still do to be a part of it, to help keep that part of you alive um, because it is an identity. It is much more so than just a job. Um, so those things have helped us. Um, the cool thing is he start, he's finally starting to sleep better. <laughs> After never, three years. It takes a long time. It does. He's still, he's still wired, um, but he's starting to sleep a little more. So that's good. Um, and we're both kind of moving on. From that because I, I was very much wound up in it too. Um, starting to move on, finding other firefighters to minister to, not just Seattle, um, to be involved with. Um, he's on the phone every day talking to firefighters all across the country, encouraging them and helping them. It, it's nice to be able to talk to a firefighter outside of your department that you can really share your problems with that you can't share within the department because you don't want to get in trouble or to people to know. So that's a way to stay involved, you know, be friends with firefighters from other departments. Um, he does a lot of that. There's, there's so much more you can still give and do that fulfills that calling just in a, a different role. So, but it, it was, it was a transition to, to have him home all the time now. All these years I wanted more of him. It's like, oh wow, now I've got too much of it. <laughs> too much of a good thing. <laughs> no, it, it, it is a transition, but it's been wonderful. It's been really good. Well, you know, the, the risk you take is that you take something amazing like the fire service, which is amazing. Mm -hmm. You can hear how grateful we both are for what it's done in our life. There's no question. And it can become just a negative, you know, and it can, it can drive you. It can drive a wedge between you and your spouse. It can drive a wedge between you and the rest of your family. It can, because of the stresses and strains and the sleep deprivation and the aches and pains that come from it, it can drive you into a bottle or into, you know, medications or pills or whatever. And that's endemic across the fire service. That that's, I mean, most of our socializations, unfortunately, they end up recurring around alcohol and it just becomes the norm. And some people can handle it. Most people can't, you know, and, and eventually that, that takes its toll. Um, you know, I, I, I want to, don't, don't want to let it slip by because we're talking about priorities. I hope everybody heard, your example. I didn't want it to let slip by because I think it's a breathtaking example of selflessness. To have your dream job, you know, to be the to be a tillerman in Anaheim Fire, a well-respected fire department, a place you love to live, one of the coolest places on earth, you know, SoCal. And to leave that job because you want to be there for your son, you know, if you're, I just hope everybody heard that. That is, that's not something you just let slip by. You know, if you want to, if you want an example and you might say, well, it didn't work out. That's not the point. The point is that the individual had a set of priorities and a moral compass that defined what they do. And I believe it's that moral compass that brought you and took you to where you went to Florida or whatever. And because of whatever was going on, it didn't work out. The point is that moral compass brought you to where you are now. And that's an important thing. And I, we, um, I don't know, I, she just got done talking nicely about me. And so I'm, 
I want to not, <laughs> not hear about me anymore because it's embarrassing. Um, here's an example. Ann and I don't drink. We don't drink alcohol. And I've developed a, a contempt for alcohol, not because of alcohol itself, just because I'm so sick of going to the hospital with firefighters that are, you know, having to go to rehab. And I'm so sick of going to, you know, police stations because firefighters smack their wives and they never would have done it if they wouldn't have been just blasted. And I'm so sick of trying to save guys' jobs. Most of the people's jobs that I tried to save were because of alcohol. That's not why Ann and I don't drink. Most people don't know. They think it's because of me. I can share this, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's because of me. <laughs> it's because of her. She can't handle alcohol. I can't she's, handle a, it. she's a blackout drunk. Yeah. And one of the things that she asked me early on, she asked me, can we just kind of cut this out? Because I don't I don't want the temptation of it. Mm-hmm. And we have. We've cut alcohol out of our thing. It had nothing to do with faith. Not really, you know. It had nothing to do with me having a problem with it. I can tell you, I have taken more abuse through my career for not drinking and, and been cut out of more things. It's actually had professional impact on me, not being where the cool stuff's going on, you know, not, not being willing to go to strip clubs with the guys because I'm not going to disrespect my wife and go see you know, naked ladies dancing on a stage. Not being able to go to some of the functions where the whole sort, the whole reason for the function is to get plastered. You know, I could go for 20 minutes and then. Once a certain level of lubrication happens, you know, I jet. Um, it has had professional impact. It has cost me friendships. And it all circles back to it was important enough to my partner to ask me to keep that out of our lives. And I accepted that. Um, those are the conversations that I think the example that you set of this, this Tillerman's position and this marquee fire department was Almost everything to me, but my son is everything to me. Absolutely, brother, brother. I think it's I think it's magnificent. Matter of fact, um, that example probably has now going to make its way into our uh, class. Just so you know, that's how much it that's how much it meant to me. That means to me. Well, I mean, I appreciate that, but I think when you take a step back and you ask, well, you know, who am I doing all this for? You know, what did I? I came into this profession to make the world better. And the way you make the world better, aside from responding to people's worst days, is to create kind and compassionate children to push the needle the other way of you know what we're seeing at the moment. And so if you're not there and you're not present, whether it's your child, whether it's your, your wife or husband, then you're not able to do that. And this again, I've made so many mistakes in my life, but you know, that you talked about grief. That's when I grieved. I worked for another ten years in the fire service after that. But I grieved and never found that crew again. I know you talk a lot about that dream crew and you know, many people are chasing it. Well, I had the opposite where for the next ten years I could never get what I left. But I look at that now 14-year-old young man and it is what it is. You know, I got to spend three and a half years with some of the most amazing firefighters on the planet who came to my wedding as my groomsman like 10 years later, which was, you know, incredible. Um, But, you know, I can't undo not being there for my son. So, you know, I think that's that's something that we get so consumed by the fire service for many for many many good reasons but that's why i asked you that question earlier i loved what you said it's like the moment you start to put the fire service ahead of your family that's the biggest red flag you can possibly have and and you know having that conversation as a couple 
um, which I have done well with my current wife and probably did very poorly with my previous one. Um, you know, I've learned so less and so much today from this conversation. Well, and your son has an example that's bedrock. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to look at his father and say, um, yeah, I might be a priority to dad. He has an example of very hard priority where he can, it's something he can hold on to. And, and, and given you alluded to it, what we're seeing in the world, the way, the way our culture seems to be moving. Um, I think for a young man of 14, having that bedrock example is absolutely crucial. And I think that's what we want to do. You know, when you get right down to it, I think we want to be authentic people. We want to be people of impact. We want to be people of character and be authentic, transparent, impactful people. And, um, you know, the, the way you do it is to have the right priorities and to put then to put the guts of your attention to those priorities. Yeah. Well, mentioning alcohol as well, I think that's one of the elephants in the room. You know, we, we've got into the, the culture of talking about PTSD, which I think is very important. But I think the addiction element, I've lost you know, several firefighters to opiate overdoses, for example. You know, all I'm sure were accidental. Um, but. You know, one of the conversations I have with a lot of the people that have their own powerful mental health story or some of the, the psychologists that come on is that people don't talk about what happened to us before we put on the uniform, you know, and that's not process. So then you come into a culture where it's like, we'll just suck it up, you know, push it down, but come drink with us. You know, now we're adding, you know, a, a, a very poor coping mechanism to maybe an already traumatized person who's now piling on trauma and sleep deprivation. And God forbid, now they're in a department that sucks. <laughs> and so now they're having all the organizational stress. Um, you know, I see that kind of that, that addiction spiraling out of control. And then that then has a back end, um, uh, you know, cost for the family. So you just have this kind of, you know, maelstrom that occurs. And then usually you get this, this explosion that involves with, you know, divorce or domestic you know, dispute. Or as I mentioned, drinking that one day that you're off and then pouring yourself into the fire service and never truly being present with your family. Yeah, that's, um, well, it's one of the conversations. I guess it's the closest that I can come to answering that. Um, when I noticed Mike being the most irritable of all was ironically um, when he'd had a tough run. And again, nobody tells you this when you come in, but I would notice this next level of anger and irritability, but would have no clue <laughs> what it's coming from because back in those days, especially, um, uh, and it also comes from chivalry, just not wanting to tell me the horrible things he'd seen or done or, um, but the, the most common reaction to trauma is anger. And the reason for that is anger is a functional emotion. It gives you energy. It gives you the will to fight, to try to fix the wrong, to do good stuff. But it compiles and it can come home with you. So, again, just in our little bit, we're not, you know, psychologists or professional counselors. But in the world of marriage, what we learned to do, um, he had to tell me when he had the tough run, because um, I'm not a mind reader. I see that you're irritable. Are you mad at me? So then now I'm responding in kind, we're going to fight. And so he had to learn to tell me that, hey, I have, he, he would never say I was traumatized. <laughs> he would just say, I had a tough run. That's what it means. It was next level emotional. And, and what happens, um, most firefighters, most runs, you can be professionally detached. But every now and then there's going to be one that becomes personal and it gets to you emotionally. It can no longer be 
detached and you never know. It's typically anything involving a child is going to get to you um, or typically anything involving another firefighter is going to get to you emotionally. It's personal. You have now been traumatized. And so he had to learn to tell me that because I was misconstruing that anger. And I like spouses to know anger is usually grief. It's sorrow, but masked in a protective cocoon of anger. Um, so don't take it personally. It's not about you. Um, now, what what do I do once he tells me that he's had that tough run? Well, I used to make a big mistake there, too. Um, I would say, well, tell me about it. Let's sit down and talk about it. And typically for truly traumatized people, that's the last thing they need is to talk about it. You might think, oh, you need counseling. That's down the line. In the moment, the last thing, especially coming home the next morning, um, you aren't ready to put it into words yet because you don't remember it in words. It's when you're in the animal fight or flight response, you're in limbic brain or animal brain and, and it's not remembered in words. It takes a while to process that, literally process it into cognitive thought. So to force somebody to put those experiences into words too soon actually re-traumatizes. And I used to make that mistake. Tell me about it. Let's talk about it. Why won't you talk to me about it? Don't you trust me? Um, so I had to learn to just say, well, what do you need? What do you need from me? What helps you? What can I do? Um, and it was typically, again, just leave him alone. Um, physical touch is really healing with trauma because you just need to be held and loved and comforted and reassured that everything's okay. I love you. It's okay that you're not yourself right now. Um, lots of physical touch is healing. It, re it releases endorphins. Um, give him time to exercise. Exercise releases endorphins that help counter some of the stress of the trauma um, let him go to the firehouse and talk to the other firefighters who were there and they don't have to put it in precise words. Uh, I had to be okay with that, that you can kind of talk to them, but you can't talk to me. But I, I, I learned to get over that jealousy. Like it's okay. Whatever you need, you've got it. Um, take some of the stress from the day <clears> off <throat> his plate, put the honeydew list away, um, let him out of some obligations that he had made that, and to be okay with that, to not be mad at him. And for however long it would take, um, typically it takes about a month to process a trauma. Um, if after a month it's, it's still kicking around, then you might need to pursue some counseling at that point. But we learned what was normal. This is normal to be rattled for a month. It's okay. I'm here. You're human. You're a good person. There's a reason it hurts. It's okay. And I'm on your side. Whatever you need, you got. But the last thing that I'm going to stand for <clears throat> is drugs or alcohol. And so if it's heading that way, then this isn't okay. We need to do something else. Um, and and I, I like to encourage firefighters, exercise is so key for mental health because it counters all those negative chemicals that come in from high stress. And think of exercise not just for fitness, but for mental health. And plus, it makes you more pleasant to be around when you burn off all those negative chemicals that can only be burned off through exercise. Um, encourage your firefighter to exercise. We have Mike, if he wants a piece of equipment, he gets it. If, if he wants a gym membership, he got it because I found out over time money well spent because it made him better. Um, it helped him recover. And that's probably one of the reasons that he never really truly 
um, went too far down any rabbit holes because he's always been very physical, um, physically fit. Um, we both like to go for walks together, kayaking. In our younger days, we would jog. Now we're too old to jog, but we walk now. You know, think of think of exercise as a tool in the toolbox to help combat stress as a couple. So th- those are some of the, you know, actual tools you can use with, with trauma. And I hope what you heard there, a lot of bro, back right back to, did you, didn't you hear in that little thing she just did there? She didn't even intend it. She was just talking her heart. Didn't she hear just a whole boatload of unselfishness there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Not what I want, not what I want, but what you need. Well, we'll help we him. Have- yeah, when we approach it that way, and when it comes back around from the firefighter to the spouse, it's like, oh, okay, honey, I love my job. What do you need? What can I do to help you live your dreams? What All of a sudden, I think what we wanted to be true about our marriage when we decided to do it, we actually have a shot of pulling it off. And we'll probably end up just keep coming back to that because it's really, it undergirds every everything that's successful, I think in efforts to try to have a strong relationship. Absolutely. Well, it's interesting as well, because you mentioned about the, you know, the, the tough calls. I actually wrote about one in my book. Um, it was with my crew in Anaheim and, uh, my son was the age of this little girl that was killed. Um, you know, and this, the car seat was in exactly the same position in the same type of car, not the exact car, but similar car. And I remember you talk about words. I, I can remember going back and just holding my son. And I, I'm sure I probably cried a little bit too you know in private but uh yeah it, no no words could describe it i mean i wrote about it years and years later and it's the only only uh call i've ever had that i've had a you know, version of a flashback and this was years 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 later um and it was brief but i was like oh okay well this is what people go through you know a lot sometimes but yeah so it's it's very interesting you know i know men are fixers more often than not but on those kind of calls, I agree completely. Sometimes it's just standing in the shower or going out into the woods or whatever it is. But yeah, I don't think you can, I don't think there's very many calls you can come back and, well, let me monologue about what I just saw and everything will be fine. So I, I think that, like you said, that just the, the compassion and the love in the home um, is, is incredibly healing after a call like that. Yeah, just trying to get on each other's side, I think it's so huge, you know, um, Going to your call, uh, one of the things that we say to when we talk to people in, in the crowd, the spouses, the couples, um, understand. And, and interestingly, I've never, I've never really lived in the neighbor. I've never worked in the neighborhood that I live in. I worked in the city. I lived outside the city. I came into it, and so I only experienced this on one level. For many of the places we talk to, especially in volunteer departments and really smaller towns, they experience all their runs within the place that they live. And it's people they know. And, uh, when I experienced death in my place where I worked, I rarely knew the people. Right? I knew them peripherally at best. Amazing. In some of the smaller jobs, I mean, that's the person that taught you math. Or it was your pastor, you know, or it was a neighbor that you know, came to the 4th of July thing. Um we always try to say to the spouses, try to get on the side of your firefighter. And we'll get to the firefighter in a minute. You can't be jerks and you can't yada, you know, yada, yada, yada. But try to get on their side. And remember, when you drive through the neighborhood, you just see a church. What your firefighter sees 
is the dead guy laying on the balcony there that they tried to resuscitate and they couldn't. And there was a, you know, a, a spouse on the sidelines wailing that God awful wail that we hear that we can hear in our sleep that just lost the love of their life. Or, or for example, when you drive eight, 10 blocks from my firehouse, you see a Krispy Kreme donut shop. And when you drive by it, you see nice, cool, you know, confectionery, great, or a bunch of cops, you know, whichever. <laughs> the hot donuts now <laughs> sign is on. <laughs> what I see when I drive by, and still to this day, I drove by it, I don't know, a month ago. What I see is a white Bronco in the middle of a blacktop, sunny day. Half of the Bronco is red from blood, and there's a guy laying in front of it, and there's a spread of blood around him. It looked like a Quentin Tarantino movie. It almost looked fake, like somebody had set us up or something, like there was going to be a gotcha moment or something. It looked fake. It was blood everywhere. And this guy had solicited a prostitute, didn't want to pay her. Um, for those of you who solicit prostitutes, they don't like that. <laughs> she stabbed him, and he, he emptied the contents of his blood on that blacktop, and he died right there. There was nothing he could do. When I drive by the Krispy Kreme donut shop, that's the image that pops in my head. It, it doesn't debilitate me. It, it's just as long as spouses can recognize these are some of the things that are unique. It helps you to get on the side of your. And so if there's maybe a little agitation from time to time, those are some of the types of things that are going on. And if you're on your firefighter's side, it helps you to navigate that. And conversely, firefighters, if you recognize they don't know what the hell you're talking about and they don't know that you're seeing that thing. So if you don't kind of let them in a little bit on the, on the, the game and say, yeah, babe, you know, I, I had a terrible, I had a terrible run there. You don't have to go into the details. Nobody needs that gory stuff in their heads. It, there's where the conversations happen and you get on each other's side and then all the cool stuff that we talk about starts to become you know, possible. Beautiful. Well, one more area I want to touch on before we do some closing questions. I know we've been chatting over an hour and a half now. Um, you are one of the few people I've heard that truly seems to have found that rock star crew, that, that, you know, that golden nugget in the fire service. Like I said, Anaheim was definitely mine. Again, if I'd stayed in Anaheim longer, that crew would have promoted, dissipated. I know, you know, one of my friends has uh, had a back injury. It's basically taken him out of the fire service now. So, you know, it wouldn't have been forever, but. We did talk, we did share, we worked out together, we cooked, we trained, we, I mean, we did everything. So, you know, now I was always chasing that, but I look at that also as one of the solutions outside the family, but in the firehouse now of that community being healing and be able to offload the trauma that we see. So what I'd love to do is actually just hear, you know, tell me about your crew, you know, when did you find it and what, what was that experience like for you? And then what happened when, that dynamic changed? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, my, uh, my experience in the fire service, I can honestly say that I've never had a bad crew. Um, certainly not some of the nightmares that I hear about when I teach, you know, people come and talk to me at, you know, at the breaks. Um, I've had a few instances of crews that were just top notch. And I think the reason that my final crew resonated so strongly with me is I was with them for a long time and I was kind of in charge. I, I could kind of set the tone. You know what I mean? Um, in most of the other crews, I was one of the tone setters, but I didn't set the tone. I really, I, I was the boss, but there were other senior people, et cetera. Um, 
Let me tell you the the common factors that I found that were true, the true about my, especially my final crew that I really resonated with. Um, they were used to, I think, a little more. I think they were used to leadership a little more. That was a little more micro, you know, do what I say type of leadership. And and I, and even though they were strong personalities, I think they were fine with that. And I think I was maybe one of their first experiences of that's not what's going to happen here. <laughs> Um, my, my expectation of you is that you're going to be capable of making decisions. And when I'm not here, things still work. I don't want you to have to look to me for all the answers. You know, I'm going to give you some, you know, that I have, and I'm anticipating you're going to give me a few that I don't know about because they'd all been at the firehouse longer than me. Um, but when we jump off the rig, I want you to be able to work independent of me. And I want, when I send you around the back or I send you to the roof, I want to know that you're doing what's consistent with what this fire company does and what the expectation of the fire department is. And I don't want to think about you because I got my own thing. I got my own job. To do. And it took me a little while. You know, it takes a few years. But man, by the time we got a couple of years into it, the, here's the nice thing about having a crew that you're tight with, you train well with, not that everything's available to you. There was no, there were no tactical operations when we went to fires that weren't available to us. There was, I could split the crew. We could go together peel somebody off. There were no options that worried me because the crew was so good and they were such good firefighters. And when I was off doing things, uh, they would act for me. You know, they'd be the officer, <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe it's a little bit of a shot in your, you know, ego, I guess that, yeah, they really don't need me, man. Everything was just fine. As a matter of fact, I think they had a funner shift without me, you know, than they, <laughs> 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 um, yeah. Um, I think, Part of it is also appreciating them individually, you know, not trying to stick everybody into a cookie cutter of what a firefighter should be. They were all different as night and day. I mean, they really were. They were, I mean, I had type A's. I had people that were much more laconic, you know, they much more sanguine and, and chill. Um, I had guys who could communicate and everything, every thought that went to the, through their mind came out of their mouth and they were, you know, cut ups and the energy. And then I had guys that were really stoic, you know, one in particular, just really stoic. And he ended up being my best acting officer of all things. The guy who didn't project as much. Usually he, he did was the best acting officer um, being there for each other. Um, we, we, we saved one of the guy's jobs and, and you can guess what caused it. One mm -hmm. of the things that I hate more than anything, alcohol, just terrible, terrible addiction to alcohol. And I mean, he, he should have been fired. The guys rallied around him. Um, um, I think part of being a great crew is everybody brings a little bit of the solution to the table when we have problems. You, know, you don't know everything. They did with him. Uh, some people were the softer touch. Some people were the harder touch. There was accountability. Um, one, one cool kind of end note to that story, because he should have been fired. I mean, jail and everything should have been fired. We helped save his job. And at the very end, after about a seven year process, we went the last the last time he went to court to resolve everything it was done. It was in the rearview mirror. The judge literally came out of the dock. It came down and stood by him and hugged him and said, we never see somebody come as far down as you were. She said, I do these all day. We never see somebody come from where they are to where you are now. And I just wanted to give you a hug. That gang that's the kind of stuff that gets you out of bed in the morning, you know, and that that's part of what that crew is. And, and another, the, the other part, and I could go on for a long time. 
accountability is part of it. You hold each other accountable. You know, you, not every fire is great. We had a couple of fires where we didn't do, we didn't do as good as I wanted us to do. And quite candidly, I was a part of that. You know, um, we, we had one fire in particular I can think of. My ego was on display. And I'm, I'm embarrassed about it to this day, you know, that my ego got in the way. There was accountability there. And those guys could talk to me about that. There was accountability in the firehouse, you know, you know, just saying, Mike, just because you're a, just because you're a quote unquote important captain doesn't mean you have to win every fight with the chiefs, right? That was good for me to hear because I could go to battle with the chiefs and win the battle, but the war was still going on. And if I unnecessarily made the chiefs look bad, that came back on the firehouse because those guys are still going to be around. Those types of things, I think, are what, you know, really made a good truth. And then the other thing, too, is we just had a blast. We laughed and we joked and we had fun and it wasn't all serious all the time. And we didn't train 24-7 like I'm seeing as the mantra now. You know, if you're not training to, if you're not training on this hour of the day, you're total bogus, man. Uh, I, I'll tell you what, if, you, if you're drilling your guys all day, every day, you're wearing them out, they're going to burn out, they're going to end up hating you. You drill to an appropriate amount, and you, you I, I do believe you drill every day. Every day you're there, you drill on something. But I also believe that you take time to laugh and joke and have fun. You leave gaps in the day. I needed gaps in the day to be able to pull the guy aside that I knew wasn't doing well, take him into my office private from everybody else, and just talk with him. I needed gaps in the day to just give those guys a chance to just go off and do stuff on their own so that I wasn't in their grill all the time. You know, um, Taking that that full approach to it, not just, oh, well, I read in fire engineering that, you know, you need to drill 10 hours a day or you're not a kick-ass fire company. You know, rock on. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for that perspective because, I mean, that does mirror a lot of, you know, what happened in my crew. There was a lot of training. When I say a lot, there was all, you know, from, from tabletop discussions to driving by buildings and talking about how do we take the roof or, you know, all these kind of things to, you know, throw on your gear and actually go do some work. Um, but there was also shopping. I remember one of my funniest like visions is driving the bucket, driving the back with all these cases of food in every rung. And we were like, shit, if we get a fire, <laughs> there's going to be food everywhere. We put the stick up, but, um, you well, know, well, or, or having to separate them in the produce aisle. One time I had to separate them because they were arguing about the meal. And I said, you go get the meat. He's going to shop for the vegetables. You guys can't argue in front of the public, you know? Yeah, just exactly. A, you know, a bunch of big kids, you know, having a, just having a, you know, a great time and, and having. Absolutely. It's good. it's good. You know, one, one other thing that we did, and this is for you company officers that I think is important. Um, even though Ann and I didn't have a lot of money, uh, we saved money. And when I could, I paid for them to go to classes as a crew just to eliminate any, you know, a couple of my guys were really tight, you know, with a buck, you know, and they said, okay, if I pay for it, would you be willing to go to the class? And a couple of them we did. And to sit as a crew in a class to listen to stuff, we use that stuff on fires, you know, subsequently down the road. It's wonderful, man. It's a blast. Again, I appreciate that. There's so many elements of that that, you know, contribute to people identifying you know ways of making their crews better maybe bidding a station where those kind of personalities are there but i mean there's so many things that i think are in our control and it, it's heartbreaking because i know a lot of people that they are the dynamo in their department and I, I felt that myself in the last place and sometimes you know as we talked about before we start recording 
there's times where you're just beating yourself against, you know, a wall and maybe you need to go to a different department to find that right fit. But just hearing your story that those crews exist and those dynamics, and I've had obviously a lot of people on here that, that have experienced that, but it, it does break my heart because there's a lot of people that don't get to experience that because of, you know, like you said, egos and, and other areas that, uh, you know, create that, that love for the fire service. So hearing not only that you had that, but some of the things you identified and what made that work, I think is very important for us. Well, and you can always try to replicate yourself. You know, I mean, uh, most firefighters in departments are not going to be able to transform the fire department. Just not realistic, right? Um, and I would say probably most firefighters are not actually going to be able to transform the entire crew. But bring one guy along with you. Now there's two, <laughs> right? And you got and you got a partner now that can help you navigate the tough times. And just because you're with a crap officer now doesn't mean you're always going to be with a crap officer. You know, that it doesn't mean that. That you can either move or a new officer transitions in. Here's the reality. And it's the same thing with relationship. Make the best with what you've got right in front of your face and find the people that are doing good stuff in your job. Somebody else is doing a good job. It's not just you. You know, there's other there's other people there. Even in the worst departments I've seen, there's two or three folks that are doing the right stuff. Gravitate to them, you know, build off of each other, learn off of each other and try to bring somebody else along. I didn't have a perfect time with the great crew I was with. We had tough days. We had fights. You know, we had, I'll tell you what, they didn't do everything that I wanted them to do. There were things that, you know, were really important to me that I wanted to do. They weren't up for it. And I'm quite certain as a leader, there were things that they would have loved to have from a leader that I just wasn't made of that. You know, I, I couldn't bring that type of thing. We tried with, with the elements that we had to just have a blast and to have a firehouse dynamic that was fun. And as the captain, I tried to replicate it across the platoons. I didn't just try to have it in my little, you know, my little shift. I tried to replicate it with my leadership team across the platoons, and we were pretty successful. Um, and we wanted to be good at fires. You know, so having a blast in the firehouse and making sure that when we went out on emergencies, what we knew what we were doing, it's a blast. If I can translate that back to relationship, it's the same in your home, you know. Doing that thing together, having a home that's fun, you know, you're recreating together and you're having a great time and being good at this idea of a relationship. I, I think it's I think it's a calling from God. Beautiful. Well, that's the perfect place to kind of wrap up and, and go to some closing questions quickly. Um, the first one I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? I'll ask each of you. It can be related to our discussion today or completely unrelated. Um, I actually recommend <laughs> a book called On Combat by Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Uh, sounds like a really <laughs> strange book to recommend for marriage. Oh, or not. <laughs> uh, it's, there's a lot. He's the first one to really address the mental health side of combat um, and, and write about what happens to your brain and your body when your life is threatened. And he says in there, it's very similar for firefighters and police, because their lives are threatened too. All the science and the, the mental stuff that happens um, and, and how to deal with it and what it looks like. And it really, uh, I used a lot of that stuff in my book because it really opened my eyes to put into words things I was seeing 
but didn't know why or what. So I really recommend that book. It is an amazing book on the science behind putting your life at risk. Um, fascinating stuff. So I recommend that. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I read a lot, so um, depends upon the topic. <laughs> uh, we talked about the crew and we're talking about relationships. So uh, every single fire officer that came into my firehouse, lieutenant or captain, engine or truck, every single one of them from me out of my pocket got a copy of It's Your Ship by Mike Abrashoff. And um, as leadership stuff goes, it's a basic leadership book. There's not, it's not, a, there's not a tremendous degree of complexity to it, like some of the other things that we like to read now. But it's a, I felt like for um, the people who are going to be on my leadership team and my, my coworkers trying to lead this thing, what he captured in there was some good, basic, down-home, effective leadership principles that help take something that isn't where you want it to be and bring it to where you want it to be. And I wanted us to be talking about the same things. I had two motives. Number one, I wanted to get my knuckle draggers to start reading. And this was a good way to do it. And, and they did. They did. Most of them you know, liked it. But number two, when we started talking about moving the whole firehouse forward, not just dog shift, but the whole firehouse, the principles that he used to turn his ship around, bomb-proof stuff, well-written, easily digestible. And so I think it's a wonderful place to start. Brilliant. Well, I know that's, that book's been mentioned a lot. Um, I actually had Dave Grossman on twice on the show. So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've picked his brains a lot. So between that on killing and then assass assassination generation, how that looks at the, um, the violence in the schools is another incredible read. And you look at sleep deprivation through video gaming and psychology, uh, um, psychiatric drugs. I mean, all these other elements, you know, it's not just one thing. It's not gun control, yes or no. As we've discussed for the last two hours, there are many facets to, to these problems. Yeah. Oh, cool. You had him on your show. I'm a huge fan of him. That's yeah. Awesome. No, he's amazing. Um, all right. Well, the next question, the same kind of thing, uh, favorite movie and or documentary. Oh, boy. Well, you know what your favorite movie is. I don't know if I can say it anymore. Oh, <laughs> I'm not politically correct anymore. Even, even all the better. My favorite movie of all time is Gone with the Wind. <clears throat> Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind. Uh, I, I'm a total uh, romance nut. Um, and I, my favorite character of all time is Rhett Butler. Um, if you've ever read the book, he's an amazing character. So Gone with the Wind. Uh, favorite TV show, did you say? Um, show, it can be a show or a documentary was the other thing I said. but. Uh -oh. Well, we really love The Sopranos. <laughs> Mike is of Italian descent, just FYI. Um, yeah, one of my uh, one of my um, people in my family trees was the original um, leader of the Lucchese crime family, one of the big five. Really? So, yeah, interesting, uh, interesting leadership concept there. Just because, why not, right? <laughs> Uh, he's one of the only. He's one of the only ones. If you'll notice, it's not the Galliano crime family. It's the Casey crime family. He led it, but he led it quietly, anonymously, quietly in the background, and he didn't get in the papers, and he didn't get up on the press, and he didn't do the Gambino type of thing. And thus, he lived to a ripe old age. He didn't try to elevate himself. He he did the organization. Now, nefarious things for yeah. sure, but. The people who elevated themselves and tried to make it about them are the ones who all got shot. Mm -hmm. 
you know. So anyway. Yeah. So we once a year we make up a bunch of different Italian dishes and watch The Sopranos, <laughs> <laughs> like ziti and all the all the good all the good pastas. So uh, my favorite movie. Um, there's two. They're a different type of movie. So uh, the first one is The Godfather. Um, I, every time you watch The Godfather. It's hard to watch a movie after that for a while because everything is less. <laughs> it's so substantive. You know, it's so so good. Yeah, it's such a substantive movie that everything else seems less. But then I, I guess my guilty favorite is a movie called Warriors. And it's, you know, it's just a bunch of uh, gang members from New York that go to a big uh, they go to a big gang com, uh, thing and, and it goes bad and they've got to fight their way back across Coney Island. I think I saw it when I was like a 12-year-old, 13-year-old kid. And for whatever reason, it just resonated. And still, I just miss such a, a cheesy movie, but wonderful. You know, it's wonderful. Um, documentaries, uh, we really enjoy. I'm a big rock and roll fan. And we really enjoy documentaries like The History of the Eagles or the new one that Tom Petty, that they just did with Tom Petty. And I really love music. Um, it's one of my favorite things, and I love watching. I love watching how this stuff that soundtracked my life and is so meaningful to me. I love watching how it, where it came from, how it was created, the genesis of it. You know, the there's something about the creation of magical things that has always turned me on. And in some of these documentaries, they really do a good job of showing where it came from, and it, it just makes now listening even to the music now even a much richer experience. So. Those would probably be the things. And if you want a good series, it's a little gritty. True Detective 1, the first, first one. First season. That is probably the best. To me, that's probably one of the best things that has ever been done. I mean, the man. I mean, I think I could watch that like every month. We watch that about once a year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Between <laughs> Sopranos. You know, and it's gritty. I mean, it's gritty. And some really of the, dark yeah, Some of the content is darker than we like to go. But the, the vibe between the those two. Fantastic. Yeah. Dialogue. Yeah. Brilliant. Best best book written, Stephen King, The Stand. The Stand. You know, someone else Stand mentioned that King. recently. Yeah, um, that's the best. Yeah. Uh, and, and I would say um, Cautionary Tale. Uh, it, Stephen would probably disagree with me on this. The edited version is the best version. It's way better. There's a re they put a, he put out an unedited version, and there's a reason, I think, that the editors cut out some of the crap he was writing. The yeah, edited, everyone did. Yeah, the edited version is a spectacular story brilliant yeah. i'm gonna have to get that because i forget who it was now but someone else talked about that i think someone someone i had on the show even maybe it was bobby um did a movie version of it i think that's what it was yeah um all right well then next question is there a person that you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders military and associated professions of the world Oh boy! I have like about eighty-seven of them. <laughs> you know the firefighters better than I do. Um, yeah. Gosh, I I do. I have. There's like ten people pop into my head. Yeah. I'll tell you. <clears throat> I'll tell you a really a really good one, especially because you're talking about getting past, you know, the challenges of the job and those types of things, mental toughness. My teaching partner, Mike Dugan, have you had him on yet? I haven't yet. He's FDNY, isn't he? Yep. Um, and, and, you know, here's the thing. Probably as storied a firefighting career as anybody you'll ever meet. 
Um, he has the medals, gone to the fires, you know, and did it really well. I mean, he did the fire part of it and leadership part of it really well. But I, have, I think one of the things that you'll find really compelling is um, the aftermath of 9-11 and how it impacted him and how it impacted his family. Um, and then what he did in spite of the fact that he's the storied guy, e you know, ego, um, reputation, tough, you know, whatever, a six foot six dump truck of a truck captain, you know, uh, it's really compelling. Yeah, I think. Yeah. So that would I mean his stories, both about his career, I think you would find compelling. We do the This House Rocks class together. So he would have some of the same things on having a great crew and that type of thing. But I think you would really find the example set by what 9-11 did to him as really, really compelling. And, and I'll tell you one other one. It'll come out of left field and it's a tough topic. Um, Angie Hughes from um, Baltimore County Fire. She just recently retired um, as a and she wrote this story. So it's not a, it's not a secret. She wrote it in fire engineering um, as a young Proby firefighters, I, I don't remember, 15, 16, 17-year-old girl was raped by her officer in uh, the firehouse. And from what should have been, you know, that should have destroyed it, right? I mean, rightfully, you, know, you can see it, has had just this incredible, impactful, storied career. Uh, those types of stories, to me, I think that's what we should be talking about. You know, people that everybody has faced a different type of adversity. Some people's diverse, some people's experiences are just they're horror shows but yet on the other end there's this individual that is just impactful and living a wonderful life i think that stuff is really inspiring beautiful well let's try and make both of those works i think they both sound incredible and and i think i agree with you completely there's there's a lot that through my you know i guess international firefighter gypsy eyes i see a lot of shiny object syndrome a lot of chest beating over leather helmets and smooth bore nozzles and you know clean cabs stop grabs and all this other bullshit that i hear all the time but we don't talk about the human element and this is what's been so great about this conversation you know behind under that uniform is a human being that may have had a great childhood may have had a horrible childhood may have a you know a beautiful relationship at home or an absolute train wreck at home you know may have you know had this traumatic event and come out and grown from it or had this traumatic event and, and be crumbled by it, be crushed by it. So I agree a hundred percent. I mean, both of those are, are topics that I think need to be heard. And I love firefighter stories and I, you know, I, I, you know, love the FDMY and the, the, the volume of fire that they've seen versus some of the places that I've worked. Um, but that's, that's just part of the conversation. So yeah, I think that would be incredible. And then as you said with Angie, that's another topic that we need to pull out of the shadows. You know, that does happen. Is it all the time in every firehouse? No. But the fact that it happens at all, it needs to be discussed. Well, and I, I, I never knew it about her. I only knew her as the successful, you know, member of the fire engineering board, respected uh, president of the women in fire organization and somebody who'd become a friend, you know, somebody I loved spending time with. I found out about it reading the article and I was got, you know, I was gobsmacked brother. <laughs> I was gobsmacked. I couldn't believe it. And uh, I, you know, those types of things I think are just inspiring because we're all taking shots in one way or another. And I think, I think, I think the current cultural zeitgeist, if you will, is the difficult and bad things that have happened to you in life. 
are reason to be a turd. You can be a turd because this happened to you or that happened to you. You can be a bad human being. You can be abusive to your spouse because you saw a bad run at the fire. It's okay. You can, you, I'm like, yeah, you know, all right. <laughs> There's a lot of people that aren't modeling that. There's a lot of people that are taking all the rough stuff that happens and it's a tough old world that's getting tougher all the time. <clears throat> and they're choosing to be people of character and integrity and impact. And they're choosing to take the things that are bad that have happened to them in their life and come into people's world that got bad stuff going on and make their life better. I think that's the kind of stuff that gets you out of bed. I think that's the kind of thing that changes the world. I think that's the kind of thing that makes great relationships. And I think it's what is going to make fire departments and firehouses great things. Absolutely. Yeah, I've had so many people on here, you know, from boy soldiers from Sierra Leone to Royal Marine that lost three limbs in, you know, Af Afghanistan. Um, you know, and they're out there crushing it. You know, the, the boy soldier is now a UNICEF ambassador helping child, child soldiers and, uh, Mark Ormrod, this Marine, you know, he did the Invictus games and, and, you know, does jujitsu. And I mean, it's just incredible. But yeah, I agree with you completely. And one thing that I talk about a lot is their reasons. We can't discount the fact that you had these traumas in your life, but they're not excuses. You don't hang your, your pity party on them. You, you process them. You know, it might take a while to process them, but then you grow from. And I think that's what these incredible leaders have shown us is that you can get through this trauma. One of my guests was an Auschwitz survivor who was forced to dance for Joseph Mengele. I mean, imagine that and was, was starved and beaten and, and raped. And now she became a psychologist and she's about to, what is she, like mid nineties now? Incredible woman. So, you know, we are surrounded by amazing humans that do not let the past define them. And I think it's also up to us, people that are doing well at this moment, to lift up the ones that are hurting and raise them up rather than drive them into the ground that we see at the moment. I've been on the phone with more firefighters from Seattle Fire in the last six months than probably combined in the first three and a half years that I've been, three years that I've been gone. And it's because of what's going on in Seattle. And, you know, all, all the, this, there, there, there's a dynamic going on in Seattle that's really challenging for a lot of people. So they're calling for, you know, mostly for me to agree with them and say, yeah, the leadership screwed up. And da -da 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 -da. Uh, you know, most of the time I don't go down that road, even in the places where I agree. And I, I hope this is helpful. I always say the same thing to them. Once you've made the decision that that's where you're going to be. Now, if you decide that you can't tolerate where you are, then you move on to do something else, right? And that, that's a decision. So that's good. Now you go find something different. But if you decide that you're going to stay, you've made that decision. You've decided that you're going to spend time there one way or another. It's your choice now how you spend that time. Do you spend it in anger and rage at the machine or do you spend that time trying to find the people around you that are doing the kind of stuff that you want to do and enjoy the parts of it that you can enjoy? That's the counsel I give. Make that make your little corner of the world to make a trite cliche. Make your little corner of the world as bright as it can be. And the time that you're going to spend there is going to be much more enjoyable. And you never know. You may help transform a whole crew to have the type of crew I had. And then it doesn't matter what's happening at the top. You're going to have a blast no matter what's going on because you're with your, you know, your tribe, your team. That's the best thing you can do in the really difficult times. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for that insight. Cause I mean, there are definitely, you know, 
areas around the country and the world that are that are going through it and i agree with you completely you know it's you make of it what you will and sometimes as we said sometimes the decision is all right i'm gonna move to a different state i can't take this anymore then do it you know because bringing that trauma home and i had that in my last apartment i came home angry and pissed off and i did rage against the machine literally and it didn't change anything so in the end i made my own machine <laughs> yeah well and that's see that's the honorable thing when it gets to the point where you it can it is no longer you feel fixable or toggle then you move to you go you move on right but once you've decided you're going to stay that decision comes with responsibility absolutely and the responsibility is to try to make that as good as it can be and be healthy and as important as anything in that conversation don't let it now reach out and destroy the most important priority which is your family and your home exactly Absolutely. All right. Well, then one last question before we make sure people can know where to find the books and where to find, you know, you, as far as bringing you to talk. Um, what do you do to decompress? Hmm. Easy for me. You go first. Well, we just did what you do to decompress. We Ooh. just got back. Oh, <laughs> well, my favorite thing in the whole world is Disneyland. <laughs> so I love that. Um, we just got to we just got to take our grandkids for the first time. So uh, that was pretty cool. But probably an immediate decompression would be um, we live on a little lake and we just love to jump in our kayaks and, and go out and just sit on the water and just talk or not talk. But we have our places that we like to hang out on the lake and they're kind of secluded little spot and just sit and enjoy nature and enjoy something physical and outside at the same time. So that's probably our overall best and it's easy and it's free <laughs> and it's right here. So, it's one of the things that most of the time is available to us. Yeah. You know, whereas like going to Disneyland, Disneyland. isn't. Yeah. Uh, I met my very happiest. I loved going to fires. So going to fires was, you know, there's nothing quite like that. It was that. Disneyland. I don't him. get to do that anymore. <laughs> um, I love going to rock and roll shows. That's the that's probably the only place in my world where when I'm front row at a rock show, I'm not thinking about anything else. Nothing. My uh, one of my curses is my mind is always worrying. That's why I can't sleep. Um, it might maybe there's a little ADD in there or whatever they call it. whatever you call you know not being able to shut your head off. The monkey mind. <laughs> Yeah, monkey mind, man. You know, yeah. Um, yeah, but when I'm front row at a rock show, uh, that's the only place that I ever truly escape and kind of let go. Total decompression. Yeah. Beautiful. I just she spent four days at a rock festival this last weekend. What, what was it? What um, was it? it was called Welcome to Rockville. It was in Daytona. But it was, I mean, they have a good kind of spectrum from pretty hard, screamy bands all the way through to some, some more chill ones. But um, yeah, it's just four days of like two or three different stages and you just go zigzag across the, the, the Daytona Speedway this time. Used it's to be way better. You're way better coming out of that, aren't you? You left a lot of a lot of aggression there, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's sensory overload because you can't get away from it either. And it's four days is a long time to have <laughs> rock music blaring. But uh, no, it's 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 good. And you're around people too. In Florida, you know, it kind of felt like normal again, which I think is very healing too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, we mostly felt that way at Disneyland. Yeah, everybody yeah. was so happy to yeah. be out and about. So. Trying, trying to make it work with it. California is pretty restrictive, but you know, trying to respect the rules and respect other people, you know, but trying to do it in a way that is livable. Yeah, you know, and yeah, the crowds cool. were really good. Everybody was <clears throat> yeah. so friendly and happy, yeah. and 
and the employees were all saying we're so happy to be back at work yeah. and really good vibe brilliant that's great to hear yeah i work at the the universal studios on this in florida here doing stunts on the side and yeah it's you know it's almost normal again now i mean the crowds are there the the mask is personal choice for the guest which i think is a perfect happy medium you know yeah let's choose choose if you want to wear it yeah yeah you know um it's a good question an interesting one just going back to relationship i think you heard ann say um we go out and we kayak together and we go out and find the little spots and it's a place where we can talk where we're in a different frame and we're in the house you know when we're in the house it's always like oh yeah i gotta fix that oh you know i gotta vacuum i gotta cook when we're out there we're in a different space and if i could give one encouragement to you as couples uh, really prioritize finding some finding things that you can do together and it, it may not often always be the things that you love the most because like, you know, the firefighter may be really athletic and want to go shoot hoops, you know, or go run or whatever. And the spouse may not be. If you are and you both like to go mountain bike, then you got it, right? That's cool. But prioritize finding things that you can do together with some of that very precious time. Because if if your interests are divergent, now you you work, Right. You take care of the kids, you fix the house, you do all this stuff. Now you have a small block of time that is your recreational or your time together and your divergent interests. Now carve that out. You end up not having any time for each other. We we really prioritize that. And again, I took a beating for this because Anne typically wasn't doing a lot of sports type of stuff, softball or those types of things. I had to give up some of that, even though I loved it, because there was only so much time in the day. And we had to find we had to find things where we could do them together because our, our recreational time was only so much. And uh, I was invited to do a lot of things that Ann wasn't invited to go do because it was the guys going out. And many times I said, look, if my wife's not invited, if it's not a thing that I can do with her, I'm not going to come. There's a cost to that. But it was allocating time appropriately. You know, I'm not going to go have Bloody Marys with you in the morning. I just spent 24 hours with you guys, you know. <laughs> I'm going home to my family. There's a cost to that, but it, the, the payoff that I got on the other side was much more significant than some of the things I missed. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's been an incredible conversation. I'm sure people are interested in the books. They're interested in, you know, the 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 um, presentations that you guys do. So where can people, t- firstly, tell me about the books and then tell me where they can find those and any other content online. Just your email. Okay, so the books are available. Um, you can get them from us. So, um, and if you want them personalized, we're happy to do that. Um, wh- what we usually do is we just sell them for whatever Amazon sells them for, and we pay the shipping and the tax and all of that. Um, you can get them from Fire Engineering, and you can also get them from Amazon. Um, we're glad to sign them, just so you know. If Ann if Ann signs it, it tends to elevate the value. Uh, once I sign it, you're screwed. You're stuck with it, man. No, you know, <laughs> it's going to be yours forever. Um, uh, as far as the classes go, um, we would love to come talk to your people. Uh, usually what we do, the way it's been working really well, is to help pay for it all. I'll come and do some fire classes during the day with the firefighters. We'll send them home. They'll go to their spouses, have dinner, see the kids and get the kids off to a sitter and then we'll come back in the evening and we'll do like a date night. 
And then we'll have a couple, two, three hours of firefighter marriage stuff, coffee and desserts and those types of things. And that's the way fire departments have really been. That's, that's mainly the way we're doing it. Um, but, you know, just give us a buzz. My, my email is the best way. Um, M-I-K-E-Y-J-A-Y at AOL.com. Mikey J. And yes, AOL still works. I don't need your grief over it. You know, it's, it's me and Dugan and Jerry Tracy and a couple of diehards that still have <laughs> Hanging on. AOL accounts out there. <laughs> um, uh, you can always catch me on Facebook as well. If you just look up my name, um, I'm, there's a couple of us on there, but you'll see mine. Mine will pop, pop up. Uh, that's a great way to connect and we can talk about the details and how to make it work out. But we would love, very much love to come to your department. Um, I would tell you the first half of next year is getting tight as far as dates. Uh, the second half of next year, there's still some openings, but just give me a buzz and we'll try to sort it out. Uh, but we'd love to come do that. I appreciate the chance to, to say that. One last thing. Um, we, we can do some of it. Um, I know a lot of like volunteers and stuff. You've lost your jobs and things like that. Um, just give us a call. We can sort it out, you know, getting you a book or whatever. We can figure out a way to, to make it work. We don't want the costs to uh, um, prohibit somebody who's really, really in need. So I hope that makes sense. Beautiful. Absolutely, it does. And I think that's the, the community that gets forgotten about a lot of the volunteers. And even I had an interesting conversation with a group called the Fire, was it Firewife Life. And there was a mix from, you know, volunteer wives to, you know, previous military term firefighter. And, um, the volunteer one I never thought about. When you and I go to work, we leave at, you know, 5 a.m., we kiss our, you know, wives and kids, and then you're gone. And 24 hours later, you come home. With the volunteer, the pager goes off and the wife sees the husband or the husband sees the wife leave. And not knowing if they're ever going to come back or maybe they see the giant glow out the window. And that's something I never thought about as well, that the volunteer impact on the family is very different than the career one. Right. Well, and then, and then you talked a little bit about sleep deprivation, which we didn't really have time to go into. The volunteer firefighter goes out at two in the morning and goes and does all that stuff. They come back in, try to get some sleep, and then they're getting up at six to go to their job. You know, there's 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 no coming home and getting a break. There's coming home. You try to get some sleep and then you're going to, you know, going to teach. Yeah. And going to sell cars or doing whatever. Yeah, it's real. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say thank you to you both. I mean, it's been an incredible conversation. We went basically an hour over what, what I said it was going to be. And there's so much more we could have talked about. But, you know, your your perspective as a healthy marriage that, you know, has thrived during the fire service. And then, Mike, your perspective on finding a crew, you know, the kind of crew in the kind of department that a lot of us are chasing. Um, those are two very, very invaluable, you know, lenses that a lot of us, I think, need to hear. So I just want to thank you so much for taking, you know, two and a half hours to truly tell your story today. Well, thanks for having us. This was really, really fun. You're, you're a wonderful host. <laughs> well, I, I hope you got some stuff you can use, and I hope that your guests aren't going, man, are these guys going to ever and stop talking? Up. Holy smokes. <laughs> <laughs>